this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm Anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. My fellow Estorians, I'm Aziz. With me is Ashea, and this is Valar Reredus. Each episode of Valar Reredus for the Winds of Winter will feature a guest or guests. We'll take a closer look at each chapter, going through them one by one instead of in batches of three, four, five, or six, or however many. Let's welcome our excellent guests. We've got two today, two first-timers for us people who we are excited to talk to about this fun chapter. And I want to make sure you know what they're doing on their channels as well. So let me start with Minaro of Minaro Geek TV. Say hello and welcome. Hi, everyone. Um, and as Aziz says, I'm Minaro. Um, my YouTube channel is Minaro Geek TV. And I'm kind of like a Seinfeld. I talk about things that, <laughs> <laughs> that you know, any given subject matter on any given day. Um, I do do Game of Thrones subject matters every now and then, but mostly pop culture stuff. I saw that you're covering a little bit of The Expanse, too. Uh, that was uh, that was nice to see because we're huge fans of The Expanse over here. <laughs> right on. And Scott of Davos Fingers. We have known each other a while. We've gotten to hang out at conventions and such, but we haven't gotten together on a pod like this before. We've done some panels before, but... Hey, how you doing, my friend? Doing great, man. Really excited to be here. Uh, just, yeah, excited to to meet your audience and uh, explore Ariane a little bit. Yeah, um, yeah. You could, our of course, Davos Fingers is our podcast. You can find us anywhere, most podcast places. But yeah, really excited to be here, man. Thank you for thank you for having. Right me. on. Well, we've got links to both of y'all's shows in the description, and I hope you know, people want to check them out after we get through this and have a lot of fun with this chapter. What what are you guys doing? I know, Minar, you said you, you do whatever you're feeling like. Scott, what are you guys doing over on Davos Fingers right now? Right now, we're doing a segment called Meet Kalisar, which has been a lot of fun. Our regular episodes are we bring on somebody in the fandom, just people that want to share their thoughts, and we have them pick their favorite chapter, and we talk about that, but we also spend some time just talking about them and what drives them and what brought them to the fandom and what brought them to the series and it's been really, really fun just to get to meet a lot of people better because we consider all these people really our friends through Twitter and through the various media, but we don't know them as well as we'd like. And so one by one, you know, we kind of get to know them. It's been, it's been really rewarding. That's great. That's a really good idea. It reminds me of that website, Humans of New York. You guys are like doing Humans of the Song of Ice and Fire fandom. That's really cool. Humans <laughs> yeah, of kind, Kalisar. Kind of similar, yeah. Yeah. Maybe you could do Dragons of the Kalisar eventually too. You could do some... That'd be fun. I feel like the guest list would be short. <laughs> <laughs> well, as always, look out for notes and great thoughts from Nina, aka goodqueenally.tumblr.com. That's with one L. She has some excellent notes on Ariane, as always. And of course, we have Joe Buckley. His thoughts are in here as well. You got to hear him last week with his new co-host, Emily, for Ariane One. Check them out over on the Isle of Faces pod. 
Each episode of Valar Read is for the Winds of Winter will also start with a history of the chapter itself. May 11, 2016, George fully released his chapter on his website, though it had been first read aloud at Worldcon in 2015, which was in Spokane, Washington. If you've been following Valar Reedus for Winds of Winter, you know that between Montana and Washington State, it's starting to sound like George really likes to read sample chapters in the Northwest. So I guess that's when we're waiting for the dream of spring. Apparently, that's where you're going to want to hang out. Go to the Northwest. Maybe you'll get the, the scoop on some things. And this was the second to last sample chapter released. The last was The Forsaken. And I actually neglected to mention this during Ariane 1, but both that chapter, Ariane 1, and this one were originally set in A Dance with Dragons. So it's yet another couple of chapters that were planned for that one that were cut, like uh, Elaine. That's another example. So really, just imagine how big that book would have been if those chapters had been left in there. Uh, This one's slightly longer than Theon and Mercy, a good bit longer than Ariane 1. What do you all, do y'all have any thoughts on the chapter history here? Yeah, nothing, nothing too profound. Let's kick off and set the expectation low for my, my way in. <laughs> but uh, yeah, just it would have been interesting to have these chapters in, in dance. I mean, we don't get Ariane in dance. We, we only see her through Ario's POV about midway through the book, if I remember right. You know, you wonder maybe if it was intentional as, or, or an easy lift out for George to, to pull Ariane out since she didn't have any already. Also, it kind of serves his purpose, maybe narratively, a little bit to give the impression of more time passing to see some of the changes in her that we do see uh, in Ariane 1 and 2. It's about seven months, I think, passing from her last chapter in A Feast for Crows. And we get to kind of see some of those changes take place. Okay. Well, we do have a super chat from Dom Tartaglia. He says, there is no message. I just like Scad's face. Look at that, man. You're making money with your face. <laughs> Yeah, your words don't matter. <laughs> your words are good too now, but hey. There's a first, there's a first time for everything, I guess. Manara, what, what do you think about these chapters getting shifted around? What, it would have been kind of crazy to have. I think it would have been 20 POVs in dance if Ariane and Elaine had both been in there. That would have been a bit much, huh? I also suspect that he probably would have had to add a few more other POVs. Um, <laughs> Snowball effect. To kind of like make the timeline make sense because a lot of the information that we get in this chapter does kind of cross over with some of the other characters that are taking, that are somewhat near the vicinity um, that we might get some information, some, some kind of background because at this time that that's happening um, where she's at, there's also some other stuff that's probably happening in King's Landing that might also affect, because she mentions, you know, her cousins that are over there and the POV that we have over there currently is Cersei to kind of give us a, a background about what's happening. And in that chapter, we find out about what happens with Storm's End that might we might get a kind of like a, a point of view from Cersei about what's happening with respect to um, the other armies, like the Red Wine fleet, yeah. and what's happening with them through her point of view. That's a good point, yeah, because we do need to keep track of what's happening in King's Landing, how they react to this, and what they think of it. And it's probably going to include 
some of the same misconceptions and mistakes and, and um, wrong information. Like Ariane is operating on a, a couple of misconceptions, of, a couple of huge ones, like her brother being dead is one of the most obvious ones. And yeah, so Cersei's probably going to get some false information as well. Some of it may be intentionally false. They may try to mislead her. And that really lines up well, as we'll see with a lot of what's happening in some of these other battles. There's lots of misdirection. There's lots of parallels we could make here. So let's get into that. First off, the synopsis. The first line is, all along the south coast of Cape Wrath rose crumbling stone watchtowers raised in ancient days to give warning of Dornish raiders stealing in across the sea. Fittingly, it's a Dornish POV arriving by ship, who gives us our first look at several interesting locations and features within the Stormlands. And though they have no plans to do any raiding, she may steal the king, the one currently trying to steal the throne, who has apparently, as they learn in this chapter, stolen Storm's End. Probably not a coincidence, then, that Arian thinks of the ancient tale of Durin, God's grief, who stole the daughter of the sea god. Instead of steal, though, eh, surely all these folk would use a different word. Like, they'd say taken, or won, or reclaimed, or what have you. But one person's conqueror is another person's liberator, as they say. And they say rightly. It's pretty hard to argue that of King Garon I, though, who invaded Dorne without any provocation. He was called the Young Dragon conspicuously of similar age to Aegon VI, called Young Griff. Both of them are conspicuously referred to as a substitute for a dragon. Arianne and company arrive at the Weeping Town, which gets its name from the tragic honor given to the town after the body of the young dragon lay there for three days. Immediately, there are signs of the Golden Company. As an army arriving somewhat in disarray from far overseas, they have need of horses and have been claiming nearly all of the ones in the area. While they're in town, Arianne sends her men out to various spots to learn what news they can. After that, they're off to Mistwood, the castle of House Mertens. On the way, they spend the night in some caves and have a game night. Sivas, go fish, hide and seek. Turns out this is a pretty poor choice to play the ladder. It's a gigantic system of tunnels and chambers and such, leading to lots of people yelling Elia like it's Tyrion's trial by combat all over again, this time with an echo. And with a gallery of stone faces instead of human faces. Ooh. And though the phrase die also echoes through the caverns, die, die, die. No one does die, not yet anyway. Give it time. They arrive and are not surprised to find that the Golden Company has taken Mistwood. The sellswords feel that they're in need of such, having brought even fewer castles from overseas than they did horses. The people of Mistwood haven't been harmed overtly. It's more of a gentle but firm prison situation. And Arianne and her group are now part of that. They want to go see John Connington and Aegon, but it seems they'd be forced to if that weren't the case. They travel onward, and the Rainwood is as colorful as the stories told by their escort, at least to us, since Bittersteel, Damon Blackfire, and the Redgrass Field are mentioned. Arianne herself may not get the foreshadowing and significance there, but give it time. To be fair, she becomes a bit distracted when she learns Connington is aiming for Storm's End and later learns that he's succeeded. Off they go to Griffin's Roost. On the way, they meet a formidable member of the Golden Company, the spymaster Lazono Mar, who has conspicuous parallels to Varus, while looking conspicuous in a number of other ways. She thinks what we're thinking, that he looks like a Targaryen. Not uncommon for those from Lys, given it was the Dragonlord party spot for centuries or more. The two banter about dragons and elephants and blackfires and expectations of success, hopefully better than said blackfires, who are Ofer. That doesn't inspire confidence. Winning does, though, and as they arrive at Griffin's Roost, they are informed by Halden Halfmaster that they'll be taking ship to Storm's End itself to watch a battle they're quite confident they'll win. The last time a beautiful highborn woman traveled to the Stormlands as an envoy to the Usurper, 
to a usurper rather. She was told by Renly she couldn't leave until witnessing him score a victory. But while Catelyn Stark was spared the sight of another battle, after all, she saw a different sort of terrifying sight instead. Now, no shadow baby's gonna stop this one, I'm thinking. So Arianne will be witness to a primetime matchup. The Armies of the Reach, featuring Mace Tyrell, versus the Golden Company, featuring elephants. But an encounter could prove far more interesting than any battle will come when she meets Aegon, a.k.a. Young Griff and John Connington, a.k.a. the man slowly turning to stone, which makes him another person that shares things with Catelyn Stark, who turned to stone all at once. The talk of stone is fitting as the chapter begins with them gazing upon watchtowers. So, do, so does it end with Damon Sand and Arianne standing in a tower at Griffin's Roost discussing their predicament and their next move. Damon argues for caution, but Arianne reminds him not only must she take risks on behalf of Dorne, it doesn't seem they have much choice in the matter. That, my friends and fellow Westorians, is Arianne 2. The gang goes to Griffin's Roost, a.k.a. All along the Watchtower, Princess Arianne and crew. There really are a lot of Watchtowers in this one. We got the crumbling Watchtowers at the beginning. We got the watchful stone trees underground. It's kind of like a play on words there. The Tower of Griffin's Roost at the end, which I mentioned. But in the, on the evening of the fifth day out of Mistwood, as they made camp beside the tumbled ruins of an old tower overgrowth by vines and moss. That's when she talks to Lysona Mar. Last week, we talked about how there were Tower of Joy vibes, where you have seven people riding, and uh, that also pairs nicely with Melisandre's vision of a blow coming from the east, right? Towers falling into the sea. She thinks the Towers of Eastwatch. A lot of us think maybe Hightower, something like that, but it could be. There's a lot of other options. They're spotted by the Golden Company from a watchtower. During this chapter, they hang out at the Tower of Owls at Mistwood, <laughs> and Arianne even thinks of this huge drum tower at Storm's End. So here in this travelogue of a chapter, we get a mental and thematic travelogue. Some of it's just in her mind. One last note, the stone beast that took wing from a tower breathing shadow fire, that is a reference in the books that we all have been trying to figure out for a long time, wondering what that means. One possibility is Connington and his grayscale. If that's relevant to this at all, there's another tower, stone beast taking wing from a tower. So you might say in this chapter, there's a lot of very towerful imagery. Hmm. <laughs> My thoughts mostly are, um, it kind of speaks to the history of what those towers stood for. In my mind, I think about uh, because of the location of where all those towers are, they were able to see any, any approaching enemies or forces. And they're kind of like the first line in making sure that they are keeping the populace safe. Most of the time, those towers are manned by some sort of a force. Um, it also speaks to um, how important that area was back in its day. And in the conditions of what the towers are now kind of speaks to how the times have changed. Um, compared to what they were when they were first erected. Now that you see like moss has grown, they're kind of crumbly. There's been some neglect over time, probably because there's not as much warring or conflict as there probably were when they were first erected in times of old and when there were a lot of warring factions when, you know, the Andals first came to Westeros. Now, it probably speaks more to like a peaceful time and there was no need for the upkeep. So it's kind of like a walking through history. 
you know what it brought me back to and sorry to make the reference lord of the rings oh yeah no, when I, they were good. when they were going through the i don't know the name of the river and then um there was the two giants that were like yeah. um on either side of that waterway and they were going through it might remind us that like okay these victories the golden company is getting they don't mean a whole lot cape wrath is not going to likely be a major theater of the war um it's good that they have them of course it's better to win than lose but they're it's not prime real estate that they're really after these are not the towers they need to be defending um they're old it's old old magic right and you know i i, I did i'll cheat a little bit uh i went back to the all along the watchtower myself uh <laughs> there must be some kind of way out of here <laughs> said the dornish to the thief <laughs> yes that's excellent. there's too much confusion i can't get no relief this is these lyrics are a reasonable approximation to me of the reason we're in this chapter and so i'll just side shoot to that as a general chapter reaction real quick is that you know this is really part adventure for some of them i guess you know arianne has been stuck in dorn basically her whole life hosting parties she hasn't been able to really try to spread her wings too much. And so it's, it's a bit of an adventure, but she's, she's out there to solve a mystery. They're meant to go out there and separate fact from fiction on this journey. So to lift the fog, Doran says that, that they're surrounded in fog, to dispel the rumors, to, to get some answers to questions about, mainly about Quentin and, and Daenerys. And are they together? What is, what's the status? What's going on? Are they here even? Right. And, the forest gets thicker and the answers to her questions slowly kind of become obvious to her, even though she never gets like an out and out answer right away, but they're replaced by more intrigue for her. Yeah. Uh, who is this young prince? What is their plan? Can he really take storm's end? She's so wrapped up in finding out more about these things that she kind of can't help herself. And as you said, in the summary, she might not now be free to go. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. it's interesting. And, and then underneath all that, there's also just really interesting stuff about Arianne herself taking on this expanded role for Dorne that she's really always probably should have had. Dorne has shown more trust in her since the Princess in the Tower fiasco. And we still have in these pages, though, a woman that is very much second-guessing, not really knowing her place in the world, still trying to figure it out because it's such a recent transition for her. Mm-hmm. So she has to set aside some of her old behaviors to grow and you know, learn to be less impulsive in some of these things. Yeah. Because eight years ago, she got, she read that letter and she immediately felt somewhat betrayed and overlooked and abandoned and replaced. And that changed to now all of a sudden embrace that. Just, it just doesn't happen overnight. Yeah. So, and really that place in her world could be very well determined in the next few months. And she has to be Doran's eyes and ears and maybe even decision maker because this it's moving very fast here in the stormlands. And as Han Solo would say, no time to discuss this in committee. <laughs> so a good take from Joe here. He says that last chapter, there's a lot of Ariane talking and Damon Sand does a lot of listening and kind of gives simple answers that move her forward in her thinking or give her something else to think about this time. It's a little bit like she's doing that. She does a lot of listening and encourages them to talk. And Joe points out the chain is perhaps the best example. His whole life is exactly what Arianne learns about. It's probably not often he finds a woman interested in listening to him, much less a princess. And she's really good at 
pretending to be interested. And it works pretty well. I mean, obviously, it doesn't work quite as well on someone like Lasona Omar, who is very skilled at such things. But for regular folk, it gets a lot of information out. And, and you like to see it. It's another sign of her learning from her father. As far as the rest of her family, last time, in Arian, when she thought of Obara and Hota a good bit, this time she's thinking more of Nymeria and Tyene. Not a lot of specifics. Do you guys see these characters as, like, are we supposed to see them thematically as the Dornish raiders that those watchtowers were supposed to protect against? I mean, they're not coming to bring war directly, but they sort of are. Because if they agree to marry, if Arianne agrees to marry Aegon or something like that happens, or at least agrees to join their cause, then Dorne has joined the war and they are thus on the side of the people who have just captured the Stormlands. So, in a sense, maybe they're worse than raiders. You you could kind of look at it that way. I mean, in a sense, she um, like Scott said, they she's gathering intel, and so in gathering her intel, she's trying to make the, I guess, try to make the decision about whether or not she should actually join forces because she also mentions that listen. If we get, if quote unquote, get in bed with you guys um, <laughs> and you guys lose and run away, we still have to be here and deal with the Iron Throne. So it's not like we're just going to jump into this relationship, you know, blind. And she throws back the history of the Golden Company trying more than once, trying to come back to Westeros and failing in her back and forth with Lysono. So in a sense, yes, they are invaders. In another sense, they're doing it cautiously. Like they're being very cautious about whether or not they truly are going to um, join forces and invade or basically kind of sit in the sidelines, kind of like pull a Tywin Mm. and see where the wind is going to blow before they actually go all in and say, yeah, we're on your side. Hopefully it won't turn out as gruesome, but... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I like that comparison um, to Tywin because it's really it's really <laughs> ironic that Doran might be doing like a Tywin move when that's the guy he's most trying to destroy his legacy and his family and all that. So it's like, well... Yeah. I mean, I kind of compared Doran to kind of like Tywin and um, Walder Frey mm. because they all three of those men kind of try to play both ends to and then kind of put their hat in with the ones with the side that they think is going to win because they don't want to be on the losing end. Yeah, they're willing to take um, risks, but they're not willing to yeah. like, it's a very calculated risk and they're not going to do it like Doran would never do all this business without some support, just like Walder Frey wouldn't do the Red Wedding without like Tywin's right. backing. So that's a very good point. It's hard to compare those two because personality-wise, like disposition and like decency they're not that similar. But in this, in terms of how they plan, that's a really good catch. Yeah, I like that comparison. Not all this raiding was ancient. It's referred to as ancient, but we're talking, we're only talking about pre-Aegon. Only a few hundred years ago, we had these attacks. And even during Aegon's time, because of course, Dorne wasn't brought into the realm during the conquest. It was brought in only about 140 years ago. That's not right. 120 years ago. <laughs> about 140 years ago is when Daron the first tried to bring it in the realm by conquest. And of course, that only worked for a couple of years. Basically, we could say it didn't work. And so this, this is transition. Maybe are we kind of returning to an era of war? We have these watchtowers crumbling because, well, they weren't needed. There's peace. Uh, we, we can build towns instead. Do you think we're heading back towards that? Uh, you know, to the, to the, the people on Cape Wrath, uh, it, it very well might feel similar to the Dornish raiders of old. 
they're used to, you know, they see them come up in their ships. In this case, it's just the one ship. Mm-hmm. And it might feel the same. But if you look at it, it's this is not a raiding force. This is an occupying force. The, the, the Dornish are maybe thinking of joining. joining. And so, and, and people on Cape Wrath, frankly, will have the opportunity to join too at some point, likely, right? You mentioned, is this a time of war coming back? Well, Dorn has been largely at peace, but the realm has been a mess. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the Dornish have been staying out of it. Uh, so yeah, I think it's a time for a war for Dorn, and you know the only reason they've stayed out of it so far is because you know Dorn has been so careful in what he's willing to commit to and do. He's had all these plans he's trying to hatch, which I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about some of those later. You got to wonder with the Dornish. I mean, they don't get along with the Tyrells and the Reach. They don't get along with Cape Wrath. They don't get along with Targaryens. You know, They're mad. No, yeah. <laughs> Except for the one. And guy. I'm not saying it's their fault. I like the Dornish just fine, but at some point. Is it you being the one that's a little difficult to get along with? <laughs> I guess nobody right now gets along in the five in the seven kingdoms, though. So it, isn't it kind of wild to think about that? We have like all this war. We have war of five kings. We have just books and books of upheaval and fighting. But there's still these parts of the of the continent that have they're not untouched, but they're not that been directly touched. And it's like, nope, <laughs> you got to play too. <laughs> you get all of you. Everyone's got to be yep. in the war. You, you, you. Yep. 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 Uh, Joe also points out Arian may be aware of the history in this area, but she's not concentrating on it. That's kind of something I alluded to in the synopsis. There's a lot of stuff that's like directly paralleling you know, her own history and situation from actual Song of Ice and Fire history, but she doesn't necessarily catch that. But we do, because George has done so much to make sure we see it. But it's t- interesting, too, to notice her distrust of the whole situation. And she's right to distrust it. She still calls it Lord Connington's Rebellion. She hasn't, <laughs> she hasn't called it Young Griffs or Aegon the Six. She's not using these titles yet. That might change as soon as Ariane Three. Mm-hmm. But right now she's just, you know, she's like, nah, I don't know about this. And that's, that's wise. It's wise for her to be wary of that, even as, you know, some of the other things are not so perfect. So this, this place, the Weeping Town, I, I don't suppose we'll mm-hmm. maybe see it again, but it's interesting. I love how George is able to take these small relatively unimportant locations and give them a lot of life, give them a lot of history, backstory, give them a lot of uh, just feel. You can really kind of get a sense of this place. There's lots of horse seizing thing. And here we get uh, some interesting parallels. There's a lot of parallels in this chapter. This is maybe one that's a little under the radar compared to some of the other ones. We got black fires. We got children of the forest. We got all this stuff that's a little more straightforward. But here we see how the cell swords are behaving an awful lot like the Brotherhood Without Banners. That's a really interesting comparison. It also kind of gets us into the Lannisters and the Bloody Mummers foraging the Riverlands, which is, that gets real ugly. Lem says, no one robbed you, dog. You've just been good and foraged. Here in this chapter, Mud, John Mud says, we are no thieves, we're foragers. <laughs> it's like the same line. <laughs> so using the same word. And you know, George didn't like, forget that he used that line. He did this very much on purpose. He's showing the similarity of the situation. The Golden Company aren't as bad as the Bloody Mummers, but you can see how these lines blur and semantics get involved. Lady Mertens is like stolen, forced, and they're like, no, forage. It's the same concept I raised with conquest versus liberation. It's all just where you're standing. And this is beautiful as much as it's tragic because the Song of Ice and Fire is really good at presenting us multiple perspectives. It's the core of the story in a lot of ways, giving us multiple POVs. Getting back to this point at hand, 
the outlaws call themselves a brotherhood, the brother without banners, right? And these guys do the same. Lyson Omar in this chapter says, we prefer to call ourselves a free brotherhood of exiles. So here's a question from one of our flick commenters. Rolling Knight says, are sellswords really all about switching sides for gold? It really doesn't seem like that's been a primary motivator during the series. Most of the time they switch sides because they don't want to lose. That seems to be the real primary motivator is not dying. It's just like you, just like what Monaro said with Tywin and with Doran and with Walter Frey. They just don't want to die. They don't want to be on the losing side. I mean, they don't get the gold if they die. That's all good point. Ben Plum's <laughs> a healthy perspective. Ben Plum said that straight <laughs> up. He's like, if you, what gold is sweet and, or silver is sweet, gold's our mother, but it doesn't mean F all if you're dead. <laughs> yeah. It's a great point. Yeah, the, the thing that, that's different is, is the motivations behind them, right? You have the Brotherhood Without Banners, which, um, they start out at least trying to do good to correct some wrongs going on in the Riverlands. They end up hurting people just the same by foraging them. You have the Lannisters who, uh, or the, the Bloody Mummers and the, the Lannister Westermen, who basically are, in my opinion, under Tywin non-orders to do whatever they please and to, cr- to create problems. You know, Tywin is maybe not giving direct, direct orders to do these things, but he's putting people in charge that he's telling uh, to do whatever they please and looking the other way. The Golden Company, it feels very much like they're moving in that direction. And whether that's, you know, John Con moving toward a ends justify the means kind of behavior as well, like like Tywin has, because he feels his time running out, those bells ringing in his head all the time, or or whether it's just bad management or, or people taking taking the law into their own hands with the Golden Company. I don't know. Yeah, some of them are. But it feels. I was going to say some of them are decent, some of them are not, right? It's a lot of it's just the yeah. leadership, right? And, and they don't even necessarily recognize what they're doing is wrong or not. Just Brother without banners, perfect example. But we get we get in uh, the Lost Lord a look at the Golden Company, very organized, very detailed, very you know, set up in a way that impresses John Connington, and I think it implies that this is a company that does what they're told. And if if they're doing this now, it feels like there's been a little loosening of the reins a little bit to accomplish what they need to accomplish. And I don't know if that's true, but it, it feels that way to me. I think you're right. Um, yeah. Yeah. They're not necessarily as all for this, what Bittersteel wanted them to be about. Like they still have that as like a motto. It's still kind of there, but yes. I think there's a sense that it's not really that important to them. It's something that keeps them together, but really they just, you know, if, if, one, if you offer one of their captains a castle versus keeping his loyalty to the Golden Company, what do you think? Are they gonna, is he really going to say no? I agree with Scott that it's, it depends on what their what their goal what their mission is what their goal is. Mm. I also agree it's about management, right? Because when the Golden Company were first uh, first started under Bittersteel, they had a sense of honor about them, and that they never break a contract. You know what I mean? So they were they were seen as one of the the most trustworthy sellsors, knowing that if you had a contract with the Golden Company, you were assured that they were going to follow through with that contract. Now, their mindset is different, right? You're going from like baby boomer to now like a Gen Z. <laughs> so your way, your way of thinking and your thoughts are going to be like way different than what your mom or your grand, grandmother was. Like when we, when we talk about Chain, his grandfather <laughs> was, was part of the original member. And now here he is, a grandson is now part of the company. So he has no real connection to what his grandfather actually went through with respect to Westeros because he had never set foot on Westeros until this time. So 
he had no true connection other than the fact that his grandfather was exiled originally. Um, yeah. Same thing with the Brotherhood with Banners. It's about leadership. When they were under um, Beric, you know, they were more honorable. They, when they were fighting for the common man, now that they're under Lady Stoneheart, it's like a free for all. They're like <laughs> killing. Yeah. Revenge <laughs> they're like honor. killing, you know, <laughs> anything that says Frey, they're going to kill it. You know what I mean? So I shouldn't say it. I should say him. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that scene with Thoros and Brienne in the cave kind of like sums it up. You know what I mean? About where they were when they were under Beric and who they are now under Lady Stoneheart. And so you can say the same thing about the Golden Company, who they were under Bittersteel. So who they are now under uh, Harris Strickland. So you can kind of say now that they are both kind of using the same methods in how they occupy certain certain cities and spaces in order to kind of get what they need, the supplies they need in order for them to be able to maintain their ranks. Same thing with the Brotherhood Without Banners. They kind of like somewhat, I wouldn't say occupy, but they like forage and make deals with the common folk and for those that won't make deal with them, they kind of like power and influence from, you know, from when they were in that area, even though they do have people that help them, but there's a lot of people who are against what they're doing. Yeah. They've, they've lost sort of, they've sort of lost the correct correct. consensus. That's, that's how I view, that's kind of how I view all of them. They, they all are similar in a lot of ways in that they pretty much gradually changed in what their original mission was to what it's become. Thinking about how this may apply to Daenerys later, she also is someone that has never really seen Westeros other than counting her birth. Uh, But also, speaking of her as a leader, what happens if she, you know, we see some of the stuff that happens in the show and those people that are helping her end slavery start to, I don't know, do things that aren't so... Good, right? Pretty big topic, so we won't get too deep into that, but I wanted to throw that out there as a, something to stick in the back of your mind to consider how some of these things also apply to Daenerys and, and her leadership and what leadership, her, her, the, the leaders beneath her and how they handle things. Like currently, Barristan is, is running things without her, and he's doing a decent job, but <laughs> they're not all going to be as honorable as Barristan, right? Yeah. Like this is maybe kind of a Barristan-Dondarian situation when if but Barristan's gone and Danny still isn't back, then who knows what could happen and it could get pretty ugly. The further you get from that tree, the less important the original grasp of the goal was. It becomes more and more Great tenuous. Point. And we even see that with Barrick himself, the more lives he loses. Right? But, yeah. but, you know, if Danny's not around, you know, and embarrassed and other, it'll just continue to deteriorate. And you see it here with the Golden Company too. The men aren't around maybe to enforce, you know, what they need to do. And so, and the year, over the years, you know, what's changed with the Golden Company? Like, that link is much weaker than it used to be. Yeah. You're bringing might, up this America is great, time. by the way. I really like that comparison about that encapsulating how much things degrade over time. I've never, I've never yeah. thought about that before, but I really like it. Yeah, it's a really good example of just the, the corrupt human failure, just of how institutions turn, break down over time and can turn into the exact opposite of what they started off as. And um, I think that's, uh, that happens in the real world all the time. Uh, so on the topic of leadership, segueing to a very important character, Daron the Young Dragon. We were just talking about him last week in comparison to Egg on the Sixth. This was a great leader. 
maybe not a great administrator because after the conquest of Dorne, things he didn't do that very well. The actual conquest, the military strategy, this is why we, he reminds us of Rob, and we've made this comparison so many times because Rob was also a, very gifted with strategy and with leadership, and men like to follow him. Talk about someone that they were like ready to get behind. They loved the idea of the new country, and they loved the idea of who was leading them. It was a Stark, right? This is very similar. We need to keep all this in mind when we think about Aegon VI as well. It's certainly ominous for Aegon to have a dead young Targaryen and all the weeping over his death come up here in this chapter, right? Like, um, uh-oh. <laughs> if you're an Aegon VI fan, this is, not, uh, this is not positive foreshadowing for his outlook. But yeah, he's a, he was a guy that everyone got behind. He was like, let's invade Dorne. I'm a badass. I've got the plans. I'm full of energy and confidence. And everybody's like, yeah, let's do it. He really got them, really got them moving. And, but it's, you know, and the war part went really well, but the after stuff didn't. <laughs> Let's talk about some of the things they have in common and what this bodes uh, for the future here. And maybe if, if we have any guesses for how it might go wrong. After all, Daron was killed at a parlay. And I wonder if maybe something along those lines is in its store for Aegon. Well, maybe other guesses have him just dying in a... a wildfire or dragon fire or both the crown this is a really important detail oh, yeah. the crown was lost the the crown of the conqueror himself was held by Daron the first and when that parlay happened and he was killed they kept the crown they also kept dark sister but that was given back um, and they kept aiming the dragon knight that was also given or he was also given back <laughs> So, but the crown was not. The crown is still supposedly gone. But eh, what do we think about that? We really think that crown is gone. Wouldn't it be awfully convenient for that crown to pop up on this new candidate here? Wouldn't that be a nice thing for the Dornish to seal that deal with? What do you think, Scott? Yeah, well, I have a lot of thoughts on, on that we'll get to later about whether that's realistic. But uh, but if it happens, I could see that crown for sure being like a peace offering is the right term, but like in it, like a an alliance gift, mm. right? Yeah. Here, use this. Use this, Aegon. Have it. You know, you're, you're a lot like this guy. These guys are linked in the text. I mean, through, through lots of similarities. You mentioned last week the quote disease. I think you mentioned your summary again. You have a dragon, is what Darren said before they invaded. You have a dragon. He stands before you. And Aegon said to the Golden Company to get them, I am the only dragon you need. Yeah. Uh, you know, there we, we don't know a whole lot about Daron, really. And, and we don't know a whole lot about Aegon, really. We see, you know, some compulsive, immature behavior on, on the boat on before. And then we see this one chapter where he's very persuasive in very few words and everyone just kind of gets behind him. He looks the part for sure. They got him dressed heels to neck uh, in Targaryen stuff. And he's, he's very persuasive, as Darion was. Uh, they both have, I think, a bit of a chip on their shoulder. Daron about this unresolved business of, of unifying Dorne with, with everyone else and Aegon getting King Westeros back for his family in general. Uh, Daron conquered Dorne but lost 10,000 men doing it. Guess how many people the Golden Company has? Mm. <laughs> mm-hmm. 10,000. They're both very young, so there, there's a lot of similarities there. But uh, yeah, I don't, I, don't know that it's, I don't know that it's necessarily a good thing if you're looking to read the bones of Aegon's <laughs> Yeah, he may join, he may become Bones himself. Them Bones, as Alice in Chains would say. 
I just want to say I agree with everything that Scott just said Mm -hmm. with respect to those two. I think it's actually kind of spot on. Aegon has John Connington, and John Connington is also has a quest of his own, where Aegon is trying to reclaim the throne for Targaryen rule. It seems like John Connington is trying to also regain a sense of his honor and pay back a debt to Rhaegar, which is probably why he's he's doing a, he's probably going towards this road of doing the means to an end type of he's taking that route because of his conversation that he had with um, Toyn, how things went wrong um, back during Robert's Rebellion. And I'm sure he is not going to make the same mistake this time around. He'll make different mistakes this time. (laughs) (laughs) He he is not. humans do best. (laughs) Yeah. So other than um, I I think the added um, part of Aegon, ha- Aegon having John Connington um, as 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 an add-on. There's even more of a of a of a need for for them to succeed now. Um, That's a good point. Yeah, I wonder. If, I wonder if Aegon. I wonder if Connington can be somewhat compared to Visenya in a few kind of vague ways, or maybe even more often. Uh, you have to give, to give some thought to that. I would suspect that. Things will never go as as they want it because that's not the universe that George R. R. Martin lives in. <laughs> so <laughs> things will be going on. You're chucking along. Okay, this looks like it's going to succeed. And next thing you know, somebody's head gets chopped off. So we might see a lot of success in the beginning, but there's always going to be a wrench. And whether that wrench is going to be Dorn or Danny, we don't know. Mm. Because Dorn is really good at throwing a wrench in everybody's plan. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Dorn is very good at doing that. And right now, the wrench might be Ariane. So we don't know, right? Because as of right now, she is the representative. She's the Dornish representative at this point in time. What happens when she finds out that Quentin is dead? Right? Gosh, I want to know so bad. <laughs> so that might, be, <laughs> yeah, but- that might be the monkey wrench that throws everything off or it might be Danny, right? We don't know because if she swoops in with her dragons, all the best laid plans (laughs) will probably go, you know, up in smoke. So (laughs) Darren, God bless his soul. He, he, you know, he was on the right path, but then again, you know, the daughter swooped in and (laughs) we're renting that 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 plan real quick. Not so easy to conquer are they? or to keep conquering in this case. Yeah. That's a good take. Which is, Ahead, Which is an important difference to, to what's happening here, right? Yes. Darren is trying to conquer Dorne. John and Aegon are trying to get Dorne on the plan. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That's a good like, point. Yeah. They've, maybe they've learned. They're like, man, you mess with Dorne and they throw wrenches at you. <laughs> right? You become the like, tool. Let's use the wrench instead of let them throw it. <laughs> yeah. you know? Well said. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a good point because, and to add on to that a little bit, it's true that, then this is a theme of the chapter is, is, getting people to like you popularity and charisma and and uh, having people want to join you which we see that in this chapter one of the three ends mm-hmm. one of the pieces of news that's heard is some boys going off to join connington they're you know they may not have done that if it was some other leader um or you know if they weren't fired up about getting involved yeah it's really it's really interesting to see uh the the, the way the leadership interacts with all this and the way the uh the historic 
elements float through this chapter, giving wind to all these different sales. I think it's really neat. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Moving on to the Rainwood, which is another example of that. This is a travelogue aspect of this chapter, um, which the last chapter was as well. A great take from Nina here. This is a very political chapter focused on, you know, the Iron Throne and whether or not they should back this candidate. Very much Game of Thrones style thinking in the very literal sense. But this is a naturalistic break, she says. It's a reminder that in this big scheme of things, Nature is stronger than politics. <laughs> Let's not forget what's happening into the far north. Maybe the rainwood is safe from the others, but nature is more powerful than any human force is, is a, a concern here. And it's also just so different. It's so different than Dorne. <laughs> it's so very alien. It's like a whole nother world. And that really says a lot too. It's like, this is, you're not in Kansas anymore, Dorothy and Ariane Dorothy. And even that has history in it. It's so cool, right? There's this bit where she's thinking about her father talking to the Septon about why the Rainwood is so moist and why Dorne is so not moist. And there's science and stuff. We'll get into that just in a second here, but... It's kind of like setting the scene before it's like the setting the scene before all of the havoc comes comes in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I know this is probably going to sound really bad, but go with me here. If you remember the scene of when in the last season of Game of Thrones, when Danny is riding her dragon and then Rhaegal is next to her and all this nice music is playing and, you know, <laughs> and then all of a sudden, this harpoon goes straight through Vega and it's like, oh my God. the music stops and then the whole, the whole atmosphere changes. It's kind of like, that's how I feel whenever I'm reading these types of scenes. There's like a mm. part of me that's like anticipating something awful is getting ready to happen, that you're giving me all of this good stuff in the beginning. <laughs> like you're preparing me for something really bad to happen. And so I kind of get a lot of the Riverland vibes whenever I read these, when I read this, I was getting a lot of Riverland vibes, especially like reading, when you read the Brienne chapter, she, you know, she talks about the landscape a lot. And when you're reading the Catelyn chapters as she's going through the Riverlands, you get a lot of description about what the lay of the land is. And so this is what this kind of reminded me of when I was reading this and I was kind of like waiting for something bad to happen <laughs> or something, to see something bad. Um, That's a good point about Catelyn because this is, of course, we've already made comparisons to Catelyn and there's going to be even more. 
So anything right. that any other things that call up Catlin vibes here, I'm all for it because you're right. Those descriptions, we've cited that ourselves here in Valoritas. The Catlin chapters perhaps are number one in terms of describing the visuals, describing the dawn and the landscape. Like right. they may be the best. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. We can get werewoods mentioned in this one, like wild werewoods. Mm-hmm. Okay, that is so cool. Like the only other spot I can think of that is when John is atop the fist of the first man and he sees the occasional werewood tree, like in this huge spans of trees. And so this 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 great travelogue business that we're dealing with. It we we're, we've talked about ancient things. We talked about this relationship between the jungle and the desert. It feels a lot like the Crockwell Point chapter with Brienne mm-hmm. uh, with Nimble yeah. Dick. Uh, from from a landscape perspective, at least, very rainy, very quiet, fogs everywhere, paths that you're following that lead end up leading to nowhere, and you got to back around and go a different way. You know, you, you're just trading the cracklock caves for for ravines and clefts and caves. But I think the difference, I, I didn't feel the the sense of immediate suspense uh, the Menard did, I guess, and this one, it felt totally a little different, more like a loader travelogue where it's just yeah. where it's just. Tolkien just enriching the, the mm. world with language to me. But in that Cracklaw chapter, the impending dread and lack of trust is driving that whole chapter. Yes. And in this chapter, basically, they're all you know getting along and muddling through together. Um, so it, it doesn't have all the same suspense and trauma. To you me. know, what I think about a lot when I'm reading this is how many times Ariane would have experienced a landscape like this. How yeah. many times has she seen a rainforest? Had she before? Is it the first time? Etc. Yeah. And there's the line that you have quoted here from Ariane where she says the very air seemed green. Okay. Yeah. And honestly, we've already brought up Lord of the Rings. So I'm going to bring up Star Wars. Ray, she grows up on a desert planet. And when she finally sees Takadana and she sees somewhere that's green, she goes, I never dreamed there was this much green in the whole galaxy. And so I, I just have to wonder, I feel like Ariane has seen this a little bit at least, or yeah. she would be more, um, more astounded by it. That's a good point. Yeah. She has been to Highgarden once. I, I feel yeah, how like. old is she? Garden, she's, she's, she's held her little cousin, but that she clearly <laughs> traveled for that, but she was very young. Yeah. And I think as we saw, they often would sail. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you had made the comparison to the Crack Plot Point chapter. Uh, both you guys brought that up. And when I was re- reviewing the notes before this episode, I, I, I thought, you know, I wonder, that sounds familiar to me too. And sure enough, air, that line, Ariane, the air seemed very green. Brienne thinks the air seemed gray and green when she was in the whispers. So indeed, it is probably meant to trigger some of the same thoughts within the reader, given the language is very similar. Also, that Clark, no, the Crackle Point chapter was very foggy, I think. Too, yeah, so I yeah. The, yeah. The little tint of gray that she's talking about. Uh, and then here there's, this is, you know, the castle Mistwood is what they're heading towards. You would assume mists mm. are a thing. In fact, they are. We see mists later in the chapter. So mist, fog, pretty similar. Yeah, that's a great comparison. But also so, building more on the opposites of the desert and how alien it is and how different it is. Nina points out some other things, just like how you handle it. They traveled at night in the desert because that's a good time to travel. And during the day, it's like, no, nope, it's too hot. Here, it's like the opposite. You don't travel in a forest that's got swamps and bogs and predators. <laughs> you know, and I, that's, that's when you stay still. So it's the opposite. And that is part of why they end up going into these caves because they're like, well, let's get out of all this uh, for the night. 
I was thinking about Smeagol. Don't follow the light. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's funny. You know, you're not the uh, We had a, a, a someone on our Flick channel also mentioned Gollum for uh, as a comparison to what the, what's going on in the caves there. So that's neat. <laughs> it's definitely... Man, mm. Lord of the Rings is coming up a lot today. And well, that's <laughs> fitting because... There's more. There is more and George is a fan. <laughs> so it's fitting. Yes. So yeah, this whole thing of myth and religion and science comes up a bit. There's this quote, for some strange reason, the storms never seem to strike at Dorne, she recalled her father saying, I know your reason, the Septon had responded. No Dornishman ever stole away the daughter of two gods. And, well, yeah, <laughs> that's a pretty big deal because this is the son of Dorne, this is the daughter of Dorne coming in to steal a son of the Targaryens or whatever you want to, however you want to phrase it. And the Targaryens, you know, they're sort of godlike in a sense. As Nina writes, the Durin Gosdrif story is also a bit of a reminder of the Rhaegar Lyanna story, stealing away the daughter versus stealing the daughter of a great lord. And you get, instead of two gods mad at you, you have two great houses mad at you, which is, uh, might be worse considering we don't know if these gods are even real. The great houses definitely are. So that's really powerful, and it's a really interesting idea. It's, it fits the symbolism of this chapter with our idea of Arian stealing Aegon, and the consequences may indeed hit Dorne for that. The storm of consequences would hit Dorne, and that's where the symbolism really lands, because we're talking about, well, the storms only hit the stormlands because the Dornishmen didn't offend the gods, but a metaphorical storm would smash into Dorne, as Minara already mentioned, if the consequences of this rebellion or this usurpation, this claim, go sideways, the Golden Company can run away like they always did, but Dorne will be still there. They can't run away, and they will face this storm of consequences if it all goes wrong. So I see a lot of intertwined themes and symbolism here, which is really neat. It's also just kind of, as an aside, it's kind of cool to see the, the, the merging of these religious ideas. You've got a Septon talking about non Gods of the Seven, <laughs> like the, you know, that it wasn't one of the seven that during God's grief stole El and I from. So it's kind of neat that they have this belief, even though it doesn't line up with that at all. But that's a, a whole nother topic. I uh, just wanted to throw that out there. So Scott, we'll start with you this time. Those that have listened to me before know I don't, I don't get super deep into the religion components of, of these. Uh, I think they're all mostly competing hogwash uh, <laughs> right in this on, right world. On. I'm not talking about anyone's sensitive beliefs in our world. That's valid belief. But, uh, yeah, for this, yeah. You know, I, I think there seems to be something to it here. I'm no meteorologist, but uh, I know that storm, storm systems usually break up over land. And if they know that the storms are coming from the, from the south, and that's kind of how their world works, it's surprising to me that those storm systems don't break up over Dorne. And so the fact that they like go around Dorne on the map, if you suck and see map, bust and look, you know, they go around Dorne and then break on Cape Wrath and Shipbreaker Bay. That's surprising to me. It does kind of seem like the work of gods. But the story component of, of Ariane, you know, stealing, stealing Aegon and, and having that impact Dorne like a storm is much more fun to think about. And that storm would come also from the east. Uh, in the form of three dragons. Yeah, Stormborn, right? <laughs> Most, yes, exactly. You nailed it. Yeah, Stormborn. <laughs> like, wait, how did I not catch that? We, we keep talking about that's the real person you don't want to piss off. Pissing off the Lannisters, yeah. that's not great, but pissing off Danny, bigger consequences, I'd, I'd say. You're right. And, and given the fact that we're, we're tying these in with the gods 
And we know that Aegon's dragons were named after Valyrian gods. Valerian was the name of a Valerian god. Meraxes, ditto. Vagar, ditto. So even that fits really that. well here. So that's, that's awesome. That is a great connection. I tend to, to think more scientifically with respect to how the landscape works between the Stormlands and Dorne. It also sparks for me um, how Greeks, how the Greeks use gods to kind of explain the unexplainable to them. Mm. And so each God had a particular thing that they were um, responsible, maybe responsible for, or an attribute or a trait was assigned to a particular God to kind of explain something that the Greeks could not explain for themselves. And so in this instance, the, it's the same thing here where we have, you know, gods are being explained are, are being used as an explanation as to why you know these storms come across the stormlands then there's some sort of mysticism that's also applied to it as well and it's not only with them and it's it's all across Westeros um, and then when we look at their religion which is the faith of the seven you have seven you have seven parts to this faith. And each part represents a particular facet of the faith. You have the mother, the crone, the smith. Each one is, is assigned something. So it's in a sense, they are also their own separate gods, right? That forms a, a unit. Right. Instead of nature, uh, they're representing like aspects of culture and correct. humanity. Right. That's a great way to put it. Yeah. To bring it back to Ariane, I agree with you with respect to the consequences thing, right? Because... There's always a consequence when you take something that doesn't belong to you or you try to take something that doesn't belong to you, right? We see the consequence of when Rhaegar took Lyanna. Mm, yeah. Um, all three of them ended up both, Lyanna, Rhaegar, and Elia ended up dying. You know what I mean? That might have been a consequence that had to be paid for that act. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, well what will be the what will be the consequence, you know, when Quentin went to go try to take a dragon to kind of prove himself, you know, he ends up dying consequence, right? Yeah. What will be the consequence for Ariane or Dorne if she takes Aegon? Ooh, what will yeah. Be that <laughs> More Dornish trying to take dragons and uh, not working out. That's a great way to frame it. The comparison of Ariane and Quentin both trying to take a dragon. Yeah, obviously Aegon's metaphorical dragon but it fits really well and of course that is the end a lot of us have predicted for her that she will die alongside him perhaps a bit like that quote from the doom where two lovers died you know as everything explodes around them Varian and Aegon become lovers and King's Landing is just baked around them well they'll be in the red keep going up with it all and that would be awfully fitting tragic but fitting it never seems to work out well for the Dornish whenever they go into King's Landing. Like every <laughs> Dornish person that, well, most of the Dornish people that have gone to King's Landing never seem to leave. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, lot. I think you hit on the theme of the whole series. Yeah, don't go to King's Landing. <laughs> don't try to rule. <laughs> it's like, it's pretty basic. <laughs> yeah. All right, let's talk about the caves. Let's go, this is about as ancient as we can get here. This is super cool and it, it fits in with this travelogue aspect of the chapter. George is really good about that, about using travelogue things that sometimes apply directly, like the Rainwood stuff, the Mistwood stuff, the, all that stealing, the consequences. That is bullseye for this chapter. But this cave stuff, 
eh, I feel like this is one of those examples where it's not directly relevant to this arc, but it's obviously hugely relevant overall to the story. But it's not entirely off aside from what's happening here because it brings up these points that are important. And it's, again, another even deeper reminder of what we talked about in the forest where nature is even more powerful or more threatening than, than politics, at least in this world. Um, well, and in the real world, perhaps. And, it, and it's in a reversal of all these towers we see instead of being atop and looking down or considering that people once did that from these towers that are now crumbling and gone. We have below the earth below, uh, down in the darkness, but we yet, they're still watchful, aren't they? We know that they can look out through the trees out in the world, look through ravens and all this other stuff. So yeah, they're underground. Yeah, they're in the darkness, but they're watching. And they've been watching for a long time. And that's creepy. But it's also not new to us because this cave, a lot of vibes like Bren's cave, Broad Raven's cave, isn't it? And all at once, she found herself in another cavern, five times as big as the last one, surrounded by a forest of stone columns. Damon Sand moved to her side and raised his torch. Look how the stone's been shaped, he said. Those columns and the wall there, see them? Faces, said Arianne, so many sad eyes staring. This place belonged to the children of the forest. Yeah, this, before dragons even, this was, this place belonged to the children mm-hmm. They covered everything. They ruled the whole continent. Well, maybe not ruled, may not be the right word. They lived on it in somewhat contentment and without a whole lot of natural enemies other than maybe the giants. So the stone faces, uh, stone watch trees instead of watchtowers. Are these fossilized werewoods? If so, it means they're dead. If not, then I don't know what else they could be. When I read this, it hit me immediately the Gandalf uh, walking into Moria with the let me risk a little more light. <laughs> and then he fires up the staff and there's just rows and rows and rows of stone columns in this huge dwarven built city. Call. It is awesome, isn't it? And, a really wonderful visual. And I just kind of imagine them to be like that, not, not trees or anything, but just stone that's been shaped. You know, we know the, the children have various magics. We know they can look through the trees and you know these things and use the trees. We know that they have some sort of water magic with the Hammer of the Waters. Maybe they can shape stone as well, or could, in, you know, thousands and thousands of years ago. Their powers perhaps have waned. You know, I, I wondered if this was a staging point for, for wars uh, with, with the first men uh, as they were invading uh, in, the, in the Arm of Dorne. It's certainly a big place where they could gather a lot of children together. I also even wondered if it was a place where where the hammer of the waters maybe took place, they have access to water in the caves around them, as as we see a little bit later in the chapter, uh, where they found Elia. Yeah, and when they did the hammer of the waters uh, for or tried it supposedly for uh, the neck, they were right there in the in the, the tower of Mokalen, and you know maybe they had to be near the the body that they were trying to affect. So you know this uh, cave wrath is is reasonably close, and maybe this was their best hidden safe access for a lot of them to come try to impact uh, in a big event like the Hammer of the Waters. Right yeah, we've... Total speculation. Nothing behind it. I like that it's idea. It's, that's what that stuff is there for, I think, to speculate about because in, unless George gives us more, that's all we really can do. So I think that's completely appropriate and a, and a fun theory besides, as you say. We've seen plenty of carved faces above ground, right? The werewoods above, you know, out in the world, there's plenty of them. A lot of them have been cut down, but there's still a good number left. 
The only other place we've seen carved faces underground, though, is again this Greenseer cave. Minara, what do you think about these faces? What do, what do you visualize or what does it make you think of? My brain kind of went in a separate direction, which is nothing new. Mm-hmm. But I started thinking about um, like the Egyptians, how they how they create these underground tombs and then they create mm. like scenes, right? To kind of tell a story. And I started thinking about how cavemen, how they used to also put um, different uh, images on caves to kind of tell a story. And so these faces was kind of like telling a history and a story of the children because the children were there before everybody. So there is a lot of long history, right? And so they probably went underground. I believe they went underground when men started first coming in. And so this was kind of like their safe haven. And this is probably how they they kind of um, preserved their history or a way of preserving who they are in, in the world, right? Because the world that they knew was being overrun and overtaken by other beings. And so this was the only this was the only place that they had in order to try to somewhat preserve who they were um, as part of the of the world in Westeros. And so I started thinking about that. I started also thinking about here, even here in the States, how Native Americans, they they have different parts of their land where they have caverns, where they also kind of have like different, I won't call them glyphs, but they have different depictions and stuff where they kind of preserve the history of whatever tribe that they were in. Mm. And so that's the way that I saw it. Like when she's over here going through these caverns and she's seeing all of this stuff, this is actually the children kind of preserving their history, kind of like telling their story of who Mm. they were. Now it may have been used for something else as time went on, as they started to die out um, and there were less and less of them. And there are probably not, probably none still in that region of Westeros anymore. But when they were, this is the story that they left behind. That's a great idea. This is, that's a beautiful uh, line of thinking there. And I want to just to add to it briefly, the notion that we're told, of course, a lot of the children's history is recorded within the Weirwood network, but most children wouldn't have access to that. It's kind of a, maybe a, a misconception that every child of the forest can access that information. But I don't think that's the case. I think it's just like we're told with humans, every once in a while, they're born special with the green eyes or the red eyes or what have you, and that gives them, that makes them a green seer. The humans, it's probably rarer than it was for the children, but not every single child of the forest was, you know, deeply tapped into the Weirwood network, at least it's not as I understand it. Uh, Of course, that's another, but I'm somewhat speculating on that, but I feel like it would be a little wild if all of them could do that. So it does make sense that they would want to preserve things in other ways besides the supernatural because they would not have access to that. Well, yeah, that's a really, really good way of thinking about it. A couple other parallels here. Um, the blind white fish that uh, Elia catches are also what Mira catches in the cave way up in the north. She catches the same sort of thing. So I wonder if that's supposed to be just another connection, another thing to, for George to help uh, trigger this connection within the reader's mind. We go, oh yeah, this is the same kind of thing. One big difference, one huge difference is 
there aren't a bunch of skulls everywhere. <laughs> like, right, that's a <laughs> like, there's a lot of skulls in that other one, like an extremely strange and creepy amount of skulls. Here, there isn't a single skull that we see. So I don't have a theory on that other than this one's been abandoned a lot longer than that one. That one people clearly has been inhabited. I mean, there's, there's still green seers, like they're walking around there and they find them like in various states of becoming a tree. And uh, yeah, where there is, they don't find anything like that here. There's no, they don't find any green seers. They don't, maybe they're here somewhere, but I have a sense that it's just completely empty now, um, which is maybe there's a passageway that leads somewhere else. Maybe even connects to the far North. Uh, even they say that even the children haven't explored all these caves. So, which is kind of wild to think about too, because as Minaro alluded to, these are old, like old, old, maybe half a million years old or something like that. If we're sort of going by human history in terms of Neanderthals and, and Denisovans and the other pre-hominid species that existed on Earth. So something like that. I, just, I think we heard here first then a new theory that the caves from Winterfell to the Wall <laughs> also extend down to the Cape of Wood. That would be so cool. Just It's a long-ass <laughs> walk, but you can get there. <laughs> <laughs> and it's almost believable when you see things like, or at least it's more believable when you see things like this, that, that line about yeah. she comes into a room and it's bigger than the Great Hall of the Castle, and then a few minutes later, she goes into one that's five times bigger than that. I mean, what is this underground Heron Hall we've got here? It sounds mm. like it. It's just, it's hard to conceive yeah. of something that large. Yeah, it really does hint that they had some sort of control over the stone, right? Yeah. I think. You're right. Like, the tunnels are so uh, extensive and long-formed, and all they have to do is, you're right, like, divert the water, even if it's not supernatural in origin. Just reroute the water using canals and and just regular Mm -hmm. logistical means. I think a combination of that, for sure, because in real world the size of some cavern systems are truly astounding. Like, with no magic, no supernatural uh, involvement, just nature. Yeah, you're right. (laughs) But I do think there is some involved here. But yeah, you're right, because in the the real world caves, you don't have, like, beings that lived in them for for thousands of years. Yeah, so that's a huge But this is, might as well bring it up right here. John Hagee and um, Noga F. bring up that the fish that we're going to talk about, those Mm -hmm. blind fish, exists in the real in yeah, the real world real thing, yeah. and they exist in a shy they exist in a shy we have blind fish in a shy oh cool yeah hmm. nice those might be more straight up mutated from <laughs> whatever's going on over there but still no baby fish though yeah. no children <laughs> no fry all right let's move on to talk about the person who got lost in the caves briefly uh, last time we talked about how the name Elia combined with all the liana vibes in this arc give us Give this girl some ominous vibes, too. We've got Aegon, who's got some ominous stuff surrounding him, Elia as well. Both of these characters, there's just tragic deaths around both Elia, her namesake, and the character she resembles, Lyanna. So that's not a great place to be if you're a character. But the ominousness of all this is backed by a moment here in this chapter. I think it's kind of chilling, almost. Like There's two things that that I alluded to in the synopsis. There's One is this this phrase of died, 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 the echoing. One flick commenter pointed out, I think it was Stefan B., apologies if I got, got it wrong, pointed out that this reminds them of Raven saying something, repeating something. The echo kind of takes the place of that voice and it, it serves the same, like, whoa, this is creepy kind of vibe. Uh, something that doesn't stand out either 
when watching on TV or audio, you just don't get this effect if you're listening to the audiobook. And of course, there's nothing like this chapter on TV. But I want you to think of TV and audio productions because if you were to imagine they're all walking around going, Elia, Elia, it, it really reminds me of, of Tyrion's trial and, and him just yelling Elia over and over trying to get Gregor to say it. And that just makes it even more ominous. I mean, that's her. this is his daughter here. I, I was able to word it like a parallel here. Try to imagine what it sounds like. Over and over, they're yelling Elia in a way that makes us think of that. And he was dueling the mountain, right? Her father died beneath the mountain after first being blinded by him. Here beneath the mountain, Arianne says, if that torch had gone out, you would have been alone in the dark as good as blind. Right? So yeah, he, he, the mountain did blind him. Yeah, just just smashed his eyes in. And so the same blindness thing is still there. And wow, I guess George intended that. It sure does work well. You know, how would it not have been at all possible for Ilya to make fire for her torch in there? Well, like, she had to like add to like, it. Like can't like can't anyone carry some flint on in on their person because they know they're traveling and well, if she didn't have anything else out. to burn, I don't know if she just like if she couldn't like I think the 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 I guess she was dropped she, the whole torch. I guess if it run, yeah, if she doesn't have enough, if she, if she yeah. gets lost, then yeah, it just idly crossed my mind about how prepared they might be yeah. to, if it, they were ever. It's Without definitely fire. a problem for us that none of us have any experience. Yeah, torches. exactly. You're right. I don't <laughs> I have experience. Say. I guess maybe some of our uh, camping listeners or friends might have some experience. Even with campers that. probably use flashlights. I was thinking about that in the cave, actually. They're talking about how big the cave is. And even with that number of people, with however many torches they had, they wouldn't see very much of no. that cave at all. Right. So it'd be, it'd be even larger than they think. It's true. Yeah. It's also maybe just a little bit of. You know, the parent in me is just listening to her say, you could have died. <laughs> and I hear myself saying, like, if you get that far ahead of me on your bike, you could get taken. <laughs> like, it's really scary. But is it probably going to happen? Well, no, she's probably not going to die in there. Like, she starts calling out. It's a lot like, more dangerous for her, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm, well, especially where I live, probably. But, uh, <laughs> you know, nobody around. But, you know, I, it's probably just a little bit of exaggeration from a I'm trying to prove my point here thing, too. <laughs> You could have died. <laughs> well, it, it works. It does. But and then she sees it that way. And, I, and she's like, why did my father make me have to take care of this girl? And, mm. and Damon Sand is like, he smiles and says, vengeance. It's like, because I had to, because she, he had to deal with you. And you were like this in a way. And, uh, and of course, it's a core element to maybe all of the Dornish plot lines. Revenge, like the major ones. <laughs> it's just vengeance. Like, that's a pretty... <laughs> common element here this one's kind of a joke but it's also pretty much a bullseye right <laughs> and yeah. there's Sivas in this chapter and, and it's it comes up pretty well um the pieces don't always do what you want though right and Elia is a good example she's got a will of her own just like Ariane did for a while there and and still does to a certain extent because her father doesn't know how much he's thinking about Quentin and worried about King Quentin and all that I think Elia is just being a regular 14-year-old girl. Just, <laughs> just being a regular teen who lives to exasperate all the adults around her because that's what teenage girls do for the most part. For the most part, I won't say all of them, but for the most part, that's what they do. <laughs> I don't think she was really thinking about the torch at all, how it, if, if it was going to go out at all. She just figured, oh, I'm going to go off to do an adventure and um, just do what I want. I don't think she was thinking that far ahead to like, carry some extra Flintstone or thinking about whether or not the torch was going to go out. 
or anything like that. Because the first thing she talks about when they actually find her is, look what, I, I caught a fish. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that that was like her first response. She doesn't respond and, to the accusation at all. She's like, but fish. <laughs> yeah. Definitely so, my eight-year-old would have said. Yeah. So I had to chuckle also because Arion's response is like, she's now the adult in this relationship between her and Elia. And so now she's like, you could have died. All of this could happen to you. And not too long ago, and back in A Feast for Crows, she was doing the same flighty type of deal, you know what I mean? Acting on her own whim, um, just doing as she pleased, not really thinking about the consequences that much, right? And so now there's kind of a role reversal where she's actually responsible for somebody and somebody that probably kind of mirrors her in a lot of ways. And so now she has to step up and be the adult in this relationship, right? And so... Probably it might have been a little bit over exaggerated the whole you could have died part, but, but maybe not. <laughs> to kind of emphasize the point, yeah, it doesn't help that her father was the Red Viper, so there's that also. Yeah, he he, he didn't so, do he did a lot of act first, think later too. So yeah, so, <laughs> she yeah. I, watching him before this episode, you know, we like to do our always sunny titles. And I was in Always Sunny, they will say something and then a title card will come up that is the exact opposite. So for this <laughs> chapter, I picture Ariane going, I will never be the responsible one. And then it goes, Ariane Martel, responsible adults. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's kind of, it's kind of sucky when you have to be responsible, especially when you have to be responsible for a, for, let me tell you, teenage girls are a God bless. <laughs> all parents of teenage girls Serious. god bless you because we are a force to be reckoned with and i could have probably imagined that might have been the same for uh, liana stark's father rickard because having a, a young daughter with a will of her own and it could have been also because she grew up with all around a whole bunch of boys so that there could have been that thing it's uh when you have a very you know strong-willed teenage young girl this is what you have to come up against and so mm -hmm. there has to there's always like this this tug of war that happens between the adult and the teen yep scott what do you think about this this Elia is a pretty interesting character you say you you have uh you have a kid yourself or is it multiple kids i forget i'm, I'm spacing out i've got a couple cool. i got a nearly seven-year-old and a nearly nine-year-old nice, nice. uh they both act a couple years younger than they are <laughs> Would they go uh, run off into a cave like this if, <laughs> if such caves were nearby? I mean, it's a good thing that you don't have children of the forest-sized caves in your neighborhood. Or do you? Uh, they're not too far away. Oh uh, we I got, spoke we too got soon. some good caves up in our mountains, <laughs> but uh, not that I'm taking them to. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, so Monaro and I are, were sharing, sharing some thoughts on this one quite, quite a bit. I mean, I, going through and ticking off the words in my paragraph here that she used, it's a lot of them. You know, you you guys in the in the last in the last episode, you and, and Buck and Emily, you kind of talked a little bit about Doran and how he picked the party and why, and, and that he's that's a skill that he has. And I think Emily brought up that she was the same age as as Ariane was when she found the, I think the letter uh, indicating that Quentin was going to take over in Doran, and also when she when she lost her virginity and started kind of expressing herself sexuality and and kind of you know starting to feel estranged a bit from from her family and her situation. Mm. And that's that same age that, that Elia is. And 
I think he might see Doran might see a lot of Ellie and, and Ariane, like like was said. Yeah. And more importantly than that, he knows Ariane needs to be nudged along herself from a, from a maturity perspective. I mean, just seven months earlier than now, Ariane tried to start a literal civil war. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't that long ago. You're right. <laughs> fishing is fishing in a cave is child's play compared compared to trying to foment something that large. Yeah. But 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 in this small example, Ariane is forced to play the parenting role, meek and mild and obedient. She asks her to be, and and that's that's a way to kind of get Ariane to start growing up. How do I make sure that I'm uh, getting my boys to eat their vegetables? <laughs> I eat my own vegetables. Mm. I have to grow up myself, mm. right? If I'm gonna expect this person to be meek, mild, and obedient. Honestly, example, my question, yeah. and I'm not a parent, so I, I you guys would have a better answer here, is rather. Ariane tells her to be meek, mild, and obedient. Well, <laughs> Ariane was told stuff like that, and it didn't work for a long time. Uh, it yeah. seems to largely work uh, somewhat now because she's more behaved. But I feel like Ariane should have some idea of maybe meek, mild, and obedient is asking a little too much. Well, I, I guess to be, you're right, yeah. but I think to be fair, she's not saying like, be this way forever. She's just saying, like, be on this trip while we're in danger to be this way. But you're right. In the long run, you're a sand snake, a daughter of Oberyn Martell. You should speak your mind. And yeah, like course, emphasizing but- that rather than like smothering her, as was brought up, mothered and smothered, yeah. uh, rather than yeah. doing that. You know, no, I agree with you totally. I-, I think that can go exactly the wrong the wrong way. I'll, I'll respond with two things though. First, again, I don't, I don't think it's actually. I don't think Doran is trying to get Ariane to correct Elia's behavior. He's just trying to get Ariane to be in a place to give advice like this because he thinks that will push her toward that type of behavior. She'll have to live right? up it's, to it's it. More, it's, she'll have to live up to that, right? So it's more about his hopeful effect on Ariane than, than on Elia. Yeah, that's a, okay, um, yeah. Rise to the occasion sort of thing. That's a great way. That's right, a way that's a great way to put it. Yeah. Rise to the occasion. The other thing is... Uh, Ariane, uh, you know, I am not a teenage girl and don't have any, but, you know, Ariane had maybe some of those same messages given to her. She also, and we won't go too deep into this because how much time do you have, but, you know, you can do a whole episode on Doran's parenting and how he let her down. Yes. And yes, you can give those messages all you want, but if you're not earning the right to give those messages to your children, they're definitely not going to respond properly. Yeah. And Doran trusted her with nothing gave her nothing to go on and didn't explore that relationship well enough to earn that trust, to earn the right to say, hey, settle down. That's a great point because now he has shown her that trust and she has risen to that occasion, at least to this point. Like, And, and her yes. internal thoughts really yeah. show that she's taking it seriously. Even if she's making some mistakes, even if she's distracted by some things, she's not perfect. She is, She ha- overall her attitude, I'd say, is, is moving in the direction that Doran wanted it to. So you could say that it kind of worked. Most people in Westeros are not really good. with Most of these parents were really good with relationships no. as far as their children. Yeah. Not too many. You're right. It's nobles, you know, right? The nobility. We've gotten into this conversation a bunch of times in the chat, and it's far easier to mention a good parent than it is to, to name all the bad parents. That's very true. That is very true. <laughs> or, or at least to name good parenting. Not necessarily a good parent, because there's examples of good parenting that comes from otherwise problematic parents. But yeah, that, you're right. That is a whole other topic. Let's let's rein it back in here. 
Let's talk about House Mertens for a minute here. What we saw with House Tolland in the last episode is House Tolland sort of served as a a bellwether for how a lot of other Dornish houses were feeling at the moment. And I think some of the same thing is happening here with House Mertens because you have a lot of houses that never liked Stannis in the first place. They supported Renly. And even after Renly was dead, they went with the Lannisters, partly because of the whole be on the winning side thing and Stannis had already lost. But some of them sided with the Lannisters and Tyrells before Stannis had lost, before the Battle of Blackwater when it wasn't a sure thing either way. So some of them just didn't like Stannis, like straight up. That gives me some curiosity here. If House Mistwood wants to be, I mean, I know, I know they don't want the Golden Company, you know, wandering their halls and taking their food and persuading their serving ladies, they might not be so, they might be willing to accept Aegon in the long run or even in the short term because they don't like Stannis and they don't like the Lannisters. (laughs) So this guy is option C and he's the best of perhaps a a mixed bag of crap (laughs) they're not too happy with. So maybe House Mertens is all for it. They're like, yeah, actually, we backed Renly. Uh, We we don't really love the Tyrells that much. Maybe maybe they'll be some of those friends in the Reach except for they're in the Stormlands. So they'd be friends in the Stormlands. A lot of people are going to take Aegon's side, even some of these people who have been somewhat mistreated, because, again, this is worse than being on, being mistreated is better than being on the losing side overall. I think a lot of the realm is just kind of waiting. Mm. What's going to happen? Yeah. You got this war going on. I sent some sons off. God, I hope they're okay. Um, some of them didn't make it. What's going to happen? I just want an end to this thing so I can go back to farming and not worrying and get my kids back and you know have grandkids and you know, what is it? The the famous quote is, you know, the, the small folk don't care about who sits the throne. They just want rain and I don't yeah, know, exactly. it terribly. <laughs> Look at me. I know the series. <laughs> but, but you know, to, to a large degree, they just want it over and they want to get back to life. And so if they see an opportunity for that, yeah, they might they might come on board. We saw 50 of them come from Weeping Town and, and join up. Maybe they see that as an opportunity. I doubt a whole bunch of people from Cape Wrath are super interested in supporting the Lannisters. Yeah. No, you're totally right. I just doubt it. Yeah. You know, like, so it's it's a possibility for sure. Especially if the Lannisters start losing. Again, we keep talking about being on the winning side. And if the Lannisters lose this battle outside Storm's End, like, that's going to be a huge call to the realm. Everybody's going to be like, "Uh uh-oh, time to reevaluate what side we're on. Maybe maybe there's a good opportunity to get on the winning side early in the game. That kind of thing. Um, Right. Manara, let me get your take on this, but let me throw you one more detail to, to maybe play with or not. In the TV show, Arya poisoned the phrase. Pretty straightforward. I don't think that's going to happen on the show or on the books. I do, although I do think the phrase will get some sort of comeuppance. Either way, the idea is there of poisoning an entire party. And that's also in Fire and Blood. Or actually, maybe, no, I think it's World of Ice and Fire. Either It doesn't matter which one it was in. The point is, there was once a wedding at Mistwood where everyone was poisoned by wine and it was sent by the Dornish. There were some assassins. And it's not... We're not told why these Dornish wanted to wipe out the people of Mistwood, but they did. And George often puts those details in because they're going to pop up again at some point. So in considering that, I wonder if maybe there's some room for some Dornish to maybe that's we maybe that's how Aegon goes down. Um, we, we try to compare him to Daron with a parlay and how the, the Dornish uh, ambushed this parlay with Daron the first and killed him. And that ended the war curious what you think about House Mertens or about Lady Mertens. We didn't hardly talk about her at all. She's uh, another one of these kind of clever old women. She's a say hoot. What you want. A hoot. Nice. <laughs> yes. Nice. I agree. She is a hoot. She did give me a few chuckles. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe vaguely Olena vibes there, kind of, right? Yes, I agree. 
I think the House Martins is probably one of represents one of many houses dealing with this war now for the past, I don't know, it's been like going on two years now since the war of the five kings broke out. And the ones that really suffer the most is them, right? Because a lot of them, they're sending out their sons, their husbands, you know, and, you know, to go and fight for these lords and these kings. And when their husbands and their sons and nephews and all these people die, you're taking away a lot of the men in their homes, the ones that, you know, at that time, at that point in time and era were the breadwinners and the providers for a lot of these families. And so when you take, you know, when you have them go to fight, you know, you call them up to arms to go and fight and then they die or they get seriously wounded, you kind of take away stability. And it kind of brings me back to, but when you remove that Lord, there's now instability. Under the Lannisters, it's been nothing but instability. They haven't had any true stability under the Lannisters. And so if somebody else is going to come in and say, I can offer you the stability that you need, the prosperity that you need. Also, I'm just trying to reclaim what was taken from me. If you if you join me, this is what I can. It's kind of like a camp almost like a campaign almost, right? He's making campaign promises. I will bring stability. Right. (laughs) But the downside to that is the people that are kind of like managing your campaign, you've got the golden company kind of out here trying to manage this campaign thing, like like Son Omar is trying (laughs) I don't know how I don't know how successful that is. It's not going over well too well. Right, it's not going over too well. Yeah, it's like and then you all have your campaign Dornish. people get arrested after the election. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh. And then you have the what Dornish. Right? The Dornish are not the Dorn. The Dornish have a track record of just like you know ruining things. Yeah. They have a track record of just like whenever they're around, people die. <laughs> and so, I don't know how trustworthy the Dornish are in those parts. Right, in those parts. How trustworthy are they? Probably people are going to keep them at arm's length. Yeah, they're not as trusted. The whole thing about, you know, them poisoning a whole party. I'm sure that story still, those types of stories never die in those particular regions, right? And so those things will probably still be in the memories, especially of those that are probably were old enough where the story was still fresh and still was passed on. Um, for whatever generation, right? Because those things still live on. And so the Dornish are probably looked at with with an eye of caution, yeah. right? There's some caution with respect to the Dornish. And so just like there was a lot of mistrust in, um, was it Darren's court when he brought the Dornish into um, King's Landing? Yes. He During married a Dornish woman. You know, there was a lot of mistrust for him, which kind of like led to all of these factions prior to the Blackfire Rebellion, you might find that happening here if Aegon decides to, quote unquote, get into bed with the Dornish. You know, you might find there's some factions, especially in that region, that will not, you know, look kindly on that. Yeah, you're right. Like, there's a straight up bit of, we can call it racism or prejudice. Like, there's a lot of folks in Westeros that look that way on the Dornish and having one, like, as queen, that was a problem for Rhaegar even. Like, even... Ares didn't like the Dornish. Like he was 
blatant about it. He was like, she smells dornish. You know, like he just said all these awful things. So yeah, you're totally right. There's this mistrust. We think about the xenophobia that's likely to face Daenerys when she comes because she's going to bring all these foreign mm-hmm. elements of people that, that, that people have already expressed distaste for eunuchs and Dothraki. Now, us readers, we don't have these judgments for the most part, but the reader, but the characters in the story certainly do. And, and that's what we have to contend with. And that's what the other characters have to contend with. So that's a pretty big deal. Yeah, the Golden Company is sort of like that. There's uh, these foreign elements that a lot of Westerosi don't like. Westerosi don't like cell swords. They're not like they're taught to distrust cell swords. And as we alluded to earlier in the episode, some of that's for good reason, but some of it's a little just, that's just how they do it. You know, it's just a, a different culture uh, kind of thing. A lot of, a lot of them also come with names that they've come to mistrust from history, yeah. right? Peaks and, you know, all these house names that are now kind of maligned in history. Or just that are clearly false, like mud. Like that one's like sure, thousands of yeah. years old. There's just no, that's like saying, yes, I'm related to... Um, Julius Caesar, you know, <laughs> like what, how, how? <laughs> like, how would you know that? You know, like, oh, yeah. I'm related to the, the first man who ever made a torch, you know, <laughs> like what? <laughs> so yeah, it's, yeah, it's a good point. I, I, I didn't, I didn't, I haven't really thought a whole lot about how people would judge that it was the Dornish specifically that, that they were trying to ally with because you're right. That's been problematic for, it was bad for Darren the good people, people judged for that. There certainly is a, a tint of race and they're like talking about yeah. I've been more focused on like, yeah, they need swords. And so they're going to do whatever they can do to get them. But if it earns them the mistrust of the rest of the realm, that's, that's an interesting trade-off. It's a problem. Yeah. Or potential problem. Anyway, it's a really interesting thing to think about. So let's, let's talk about the golden company in this light because there's some overlap here. And it's certainly relevant to this conversation about a lot of things about the black fires and about the, this, some of the other plot lines happening in this, uh, in the uh, parallel to this one, for example, let's let me, Ariane, she says, as free brothers go, your company stands well above the rest, I grant you. Yet the Golden Company has been defeated every time it has crossed into Westeros. They lost when Bittersteel commanded them. They failed the Blackfire pretenders. They faltered when Melee's the Monstrous led them. <laughs> this is really similar to what Stannis says in Theon 1 in response to Justin Massey. And now you would have me scamper off across the narrow sea. To raise an army, aye, as Bittersteel did, after the Battle of the Redgrass Field, where Damon Blackfire fell. Do not prate at me of history, sir. Damon Blackfire was a rebel and usurper, bitter steel, a bastard. When he fled, he swore he would return to place a son of Damon's upon the Iron Throne. He never did. I love that Stannis' insult is like, bitter, Damon Blackfire was a rebel. Bitter steel was a bastard. Like, wait, what? Is that, <laughs> is that really, <laughs> really comparable? <laughs> like, damn, Stannis, like, that's, that's rude. He, of course, relevant from that conversation, too, is that Stannis tells Justin Matthews, like, my first choice is the Golden Company. And he also says he needs more bowmen. And as we've learned, that's something that the Golden Company is particularly strong with these days is archers. We saw that last chapter, or not last chapter, but in John Connington's last chapter when they take Griffin's Roost with ease in part thanks to their archers, although it looked like it would have been pretty easy anyway. So Leo, let's talk a little bit about the Golden Company, a few of these members. Yeah, I've got, I've got some general thoughts on the Golden Company and how they're being managed that we kind of touched on earlier. I've got some thoughts on individuals as well. Well, sort of the, just the general thoughts. Yeah. I mean, I think we see through Chain and Mud, the kind of the first ones that we meet that are not under the yoke of Connington directly in, in that main group. They're pretty loose with their information. I don't really, frankly, even know why they have the information. <laughs> they give up that John Con isn't at Griffin's Roof. They give up that he's marching. They give up that they're counting on Dornish support, which, you know, they probably know already, but it's still just giving giving them leverage in the conversation, right? 
for support. And finally, Chain gives up, you know, that, that Storm's End is their target. There's no reason for a dude like Chain, as good with that awesome weapon that he has as he is, to have this information. Mm-hmm. You don't need Chain to know any of this. It's just alluding to what we were talking about earlier. It's bad management. They're just not as disciplined as they could be. We mentioned the foraging and things like that. Or, or they're just not, you know, well commanded. I agree so. with that completely. And I don't think what I'm going to say, but I do wonder if there's ever any chance that, you know, they wanted Ariane to find this information out. Oh, like a I don't game. really think that they're complex enough to be able to <laughs> lie and really, which is why I'm saying I don't believe it, but, you know. Yeah, maybe that chain is the DiCaprio of, of his time. <laughs> He's just got everybody fooled. No, it's it's an interesting point, though. You're right. I mean, may, maybe they do want that information to slip a little bit. And I mean, to be um, fair, Chain doesn't have to be in on it. They could just know that Chain would talk. share yeah. that. Yes, that's true. Yeah, yeah that's true. Just yeah, let him talk. Right. You know, he's going to just tell enough of their subordinates, and some of them will talk. Yeah. You're playing. You're playing a higher level of chess than my brain is playing this analysis. <laughs> it's easier. Yeah, well Damon done. says these guys are sergeants, and that's important because they're like they're not officers. It's this isn't universally true, but something that you often associate with being a sergeant is the day to day management of the rank and file. Which in like the U.S. Army, you got a lot of tough people, and so you need a tough person to get these tough person stubborn personalities to kind of be in shape and to be disciplined. That's a you got to have willpower and and consistency to do that with these guys it's a little bit worse or a lot worse probably because these are killers these are straight up killers every almost every single one of them are people who have murdered and and other awful things as so you're the day-to-day yeah. boss of killers like you got to have a really tough personality to and all that to say is yeah these guys probably aren't great with intrigue Right, because this is like blunt, like in your face, like say what you mean, like shut up and do what I say. That kind of discipline. There's no intrigue in that. It's not. That's not the. There's not cleverness. Not a lot of cleverness involved in that sort of situation. So, yeah, it, it doesn't fit <laughs> in that mindset very well. But they're also probably not the guys you want in charge of your PR campaign. No, you're as right. You take these castles, like they got fifty guys from Weeping Town. Maybe they could have had three hundred if they had somebody that. Calm people down a little bit. <laughs> good point. Yeah, good point. Uh, now that Ashea had just mentioned that, that was a pretty good point because every campaign needs a leak somewhere, right? You have to leak information. Every campaign requires that because the information has to get out there somewhere, but it can't come directly from the quote unquote source. So it has to go, it has to get out by some other form. And any good leader. And speaking as a former military member myself, oh. as a retired member myself, in any in any um, battalion that you're in or any of you know military group that you're in, the military leader has to know all of the people in their squad. Like you have to know them in and out because that's how you you manage tasks, right? If I'm if we have a mission to accomplish and I have to manage tasks for everybody, I have to know everybody's weaknesses and strengths, right? And probably who was ever above chain and mud probably know who they are already, right? Probably know that they're probably, you know, loose at the lips, probably chain more so than mud. And so, and you also have to look at age also, right? Because if I'm somebody who's a lot older compared to somebody who's a lot younger, if you're younger, you probably have a more, you're probably more straight and narrow, right? Because you're new. When you're new, you want to do things the right way. 
when you've been around the block for a while, you tend to be a little bit more relaxed. Mm. And that was the difference between Chin and Mud for me. Mud seemed to be a little bit newer, so he probably wasn't as loose in the lips. He's probably trying to maintain some some form of decorum. Chain, on the other hand, he's been around the block. You know what I mean? He's a he's an older gentleman. He's got this pretty girl, you know, mm-hmm. who's giving him some attention. You know, touching him. He's this is his way of probably showing that you know he's, he's got a little bit of information and a little bit of power, and you know. He could kind of show off a little bit. And Ariane takes advantage of that, right? Mm -hmm. She takes advantage of that in getting him to talk. And so, and I think Chain wanted an excuse to talk. Yeah. So she gave it to um, him. Yeah, it's really well done. Yeah. (laughs) So the the scenario just played out in in her favor in order to gain information. Now, whether the information that Chain gives her is going to be useful to her in the long run, I don't know. I guess we're going to find out. Yeah, that's true. I already mentioned that the, how the mud name is so old that it's kind of ridiculous that they would tra- try to trace their descent to these guys. But they also probably know at the same time, it's like, yeah, well, there's no other muds. That's It's also an advantage because, yeah, we can't prove we're really yeah. from that house. But it's not like there's going to be any other muds around. And if they want to claim the former mud lands, well, there's no one to take it from. It's it's a ruin. It's old stone. So the only thing they have to do is like cut down Merritt Frey's body and start rebuilding. <laughs> Uh, (laughs) (laughs) it's not a solid foundation if he's been bleeding on it yeah Uh, (laughs) talk about chain a little more here some of this we talked about already but there's one other aspect of this that i want to bring up is it's a long-standing theme of occasionally we get a look at what a soldier is like rather than the leaders mostly the stories revolve around the nobility the higher-ups the decision makers but we definitely get a good look maybe not through their pov directly but just what it's like. Maybe one of the best examples is the Broken Man speech. Ahem, SCAD, performer of the Broken Man speech at EisenfireCon. Shout out to that. I've mentioned it before on the show. Thank you. Thank you. But that is one of the most... You've been a a very big supporter of that. (laughs) Now now old. You earned it, my man. But but it's it's very relevant here because that's a, a speech about the plight of the common man, how horrible war is. Uh, It's horrible now, but it Sounds even more horrible back in times like this, the real world parallels that are that exist for medieval times, et cetera. And yeah, so like examples of people like Kem, Kem of the Second Sons, very similar, right? That Tyrion meets that guy, the one who had a friend in King's Landing. He had to run away because he fought on the wrong side. He fought on Stannis's side and had to flee. It's like that broken yeah. man thing, but he's not quite as broken as, say, someone in the Brotherhood, another circling back to them again. But this is just a guy who's just known war his whole life, has never had a home. Like, that's a, it's a hard life. Well, one of my favorite parts of that speech, that I didn't know we were going there, so you caught me off guard a little bit. But <laughs> one of my favorite parts of, of that speech from Seth Maribald is when he says, uh, I'll paraphrase it, a man can win 99 battles, 100 battles and break in his 101st. And with Kem, I don't remember him super well, but I remember, I think, something about he's just sitting there at one point and somebody has to interrupt him. And he's, I think it's Tyrion thinks he's like probably remembering his old life. And, you know, that could be him breaking right there. Mm. And Chain seems fine, but he could break tomorrow. Yeah. You don't, you don't know when these things catch up to you. And I'm sure, Monaro, you have much better examples of this that are, that are probably real that have touched your life. Uh, so I, I won't prattle on about them. But, you know, to me, just generally, Chain is the poster boy for a Golden Company member. He's got this loose tie. 
to the the connection that they have to the Blackfire Rebellion. It's you know, but but it's it's not nearly as strong as it was in his dad and then his dad. Yeah, right. It gets less and less. But this is his life. It's the, all he talks about is the battles he's won and the people he's killed, mm-hmm. and That's... you know that has an effect on people. It's really powerful to think about how long this has lasted, right? Like, if if not for Bittersteel, Nina writes that his creation of the Golden Company and making sure they had an ideology to follow was really crucial to making it last this long because it shouldn't have lasted this long otherwise. Like, normally this right. would have fallen apart probably well before this rather than being on their, like, fourth or fifth generation now. Uh, so that says yeah. a lot about how strong his leadership was and how important the initial setup was and how defining their goals and uh, who they are and it's it's enabled it to last longer than you know probably would have otherwise. Yeah, I agree with uh, what you said there, Scott. Also, the Birkin Man speech. I I love that speech because it's it does speak close to home based on personal experience and experiences of other fellow service members. But it also speaks to not only service members but to the regular town folk. You know because. They are just affected, just as affected by the war as those who actually serve. Um, and you can see that in examples of places that are war torn, right? You have civilian people that become casualties of these wars, right? It's not just the service members that suffer. It's also the civilian population where the war is taking place. And we see that a lot in the Mostly we, we see that more so in the Riverlands, but it's happening all over the place in King's Landing, in the North. Everybody is affected in some way, shape or form by the war. And Chain <clears throat> just represents somebody who is he's not as affected as somebody probably who was directly affected because, again, he's somebody whose generations removed from when the Blackfire Rebellion first took place. And they were first exiled. He is the byproduct of somebody of of a of an exiled grandfather whose father had him with a camp follower. I guess it becomes kind of like a, a tradition, a male tradition that all of the men join the Golden Company. Kind of like you'll find in some in some military where you have generations of the men who join. Um, just like their father, grandfather, great grandfather also joined the military. So you have that kind of lineage, but the reasons behind it are different. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Because depending on the era and the time, reasons for joining become very different. If my grandfather joined because, you know, he wanted to make a difference in World War One. The reason I joined was because I wanted a college education. <laughs> and it just so happened a war broke out at that time, right? So my reason for joining wasn't the same reason why my grandfather joined. I don't have the same um, sense of obligation that my probably that my grandfather had. Bitter still was just trying to make sure he kept everybody unified and he gave them a structure under which to do that. Because he didn't want them out there just being a whole bunch of rabbles, right? Yeah. These were, to him, these were honest men who were fighting for an honest, of honest and good cause, and they lost. But just because they lost did not mean that there wasn't some dignity left for these men. And so in bringing them together and giving them a structure and giving them a mission statement, 
he kind of gave them a reason to come together and become a solidified force. Yeah. Over time, it just changed. And Chain is just the perfect example of how things have changed from the time of Bittersfield until now. I, I really wonder how these folks would even adjust to that. I mean, think about this. This is, this is something somewhat new for me to think about. Maybe some of y'all have considered this in the past already. But like, this is a guy who's been in it. Like you said, he's, he was born in the free companies. He's lived his whole life in the free companies. His father did as well. Uh, his grandfather He's never just had a life at a home. He's never just lived somewhere stationary, just had like a, a house to go back to every day and go to sleep at and a wife or all these normal things. Like, can a lot of these guys won't ever be able to adjust to that, even if they get the chance? Because they've just been a, a, a nomad sellsword their whole life. And how do you adjust to that? These other guys are trying yeah. to fight for a home that they used to have, like you said, but this is passed down to generations. They've never even seen these homes. And it also it's, keeps them from understanding what they're doing. They're taking homes from other people. They don't fully understand how bad that is, how awful that is, because they've never had a home life themselves to, mm-hmm. to see what's being lost. And uh, that's part of why they're less broken perhaps but also more broken because they haven't suffered that level of loss <laughs> but they've also never had that goodness in the first place which you know is kind of important it, institutionally it's it's pretty nefarious yeah. actually i mean if I, they don't really tell you the golden company is explicitly doing this but if all the men are constantly sleeping with camp followers and all those camp followers are constantly following along the tail it's part of the system but they're going to raise these children of war that are going to have, frankly, very few options. I mean, there are options, but they're not good, right? I mean, this is mm-hmm. what well, this is the life they know, yeah, right. And and you're right; they also don't really have a sense. The way you put it was was really good, Aziz. They don't really have a sense for the lives they're taking either, mm-hmm. and what and how they differ from the lives that they're living, I, right? And yeah. Go ahead. Well, I wanted to compare it to what Monaro said. It's like none of them are joining the Golden Company to get a college education. That, that's exactly the point. They're not offering college education. And the the link that used to be there to do the right thing and the vision that you're talking about that, that Bittersteel gave them or a real sense of purpose that he gave to those 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 men that joined at the beginning, they can't really offer that anymore. Yeah. I mean, it's, the, the link isn't there. You're talking about how obviously they're not looking for a college education, but they're presumably looking for a home. Yeah, looking for home. So they, they are yeah. looking for, for this war, for this company to give them something concrete. They do have a goal. It's just yeah. Scott's pointing out. Versus trying to like, yeah. let's get rid of these evil people, these bad yes. people, etc. Right. It's a different sort of war, a different sort of invasion. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm just saying like the, the ability to draw the right kind of people that you want to keep the Golden Company to be an elite force in number and in quality it's tougher when you're just offering that temporary war home that you're talking about versus growing them from within and teaching them the values at five and six and seven or eight. Yeah. You have to be carefully taught. Also- and I would have to think that over time too, that the ideology starts to die off because mm-hmm. when you've been away from home for so long, the idea of going back, it's kind of like how Daenerys, you know, she hears from, from Viserys about home, home, home. But Westerosi was never home to her. Right. Was never yeah. home to her. The only home she's ever she ever thinks about is the home with the red door. Mm. She doesn't think about going back to King's Landing or or going back to 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 Dragonstone. She thinks about the house with the red door. So she doesn't have a true connection 
other than what her brother told her and what people are telling her that her the throne was stolen from her family and she has to reclaim it. That is what is driving her. But it's not truly that she's trying to, quote unquote, go home. It's the same thing with a lot of um, the Golden Company now. This was never really their home. This was the home of their forefathers. But they've been told for so long that you have to go back home. You have to go back home. But there was no true sense of purpose tied to I have to go home, right? Because that's not the home that they know. That's not what they they think about when they think about a home. Nobody really taught them what it means to have a home. So I also agree with also they weren't brought to, to have any stability. The only thing they know is warring and fighting, warring and fighting. So they don't know anything else. So when you bring them to this land and these people have homes, and they have, quote unquote, some level of stability, you're coming in to somewhat disrupt that to say, oh, I'm coming in to also establish a home too. So Yeah. And I don't think they're prepared for how much their quote unquote home will reject them. Like it will Daenerys as well, potentially. Mm. Like they'll be like, no, you aren't really from here. We don't want you here. Like you weren't born here. You don't have our culture. It's the, you know, the xenophobia (laughs) aspects, the propaganda that may be allayed arrayed against Daenerys because they all of a sudden, you know, the Aegon's faction and Varys are like, oh, she's now not on our side. So we need to paint her as an enemy and make sure everyone else sees her that way. And that won't be hard given Westerosi dispositions against women and foreigners. So like that well's already kind of poisoned. So yeah, that's a really, really valuable um, thing to consider. And uh, this is also true. It's kind of a toxic quest. We, We pointed this out at the beginning. Viserys is like imparting all this revenge, this our rights, our our family, our dynasty, like that's the justice of our cause. Wouldn't it have been better maybe to just be like, just go home and not have to steal a castle back to go? Like, does that really have to be a condition? Just go live in Westeros. Just live there. I mean, maybe Danny can't do that because Robert wanted to kill the Targaryens. <laughs> but but like a lot of these second son or these Golden Company guys, they're not like outlaws. Like. John, young yeah. John Mudd could yeah. probably just go over there and get service with some lord and live in Westeros. He won't get his castle. Mm-hmm. But like, yeah, why do they have to come back on these terms? Why can't they just like come back and just live there and be regular folk? But well, because they were taught from childhood that, <laughs> that this is the way to go. So yeah, it's hard to break out of what you were taught as a kid and what your father and father's father and grandfather, all of them were living the same goal. It's hard to break out of that cycle. And and when you don't really have any other options yeah. presented right. to you. Exactly. It's like, it's like, well, I have... What other choices do I have? None! Okay, then. Right. That's why we'll stick with plan A. There is no plan D. And that's part of the leadership option, too. The leaders are also telling them there's no other choice. Yeah. Speaking of leaders, let's talk about Lysono Mar here. This is a pretty mm-hmm. big, uh, important character. He's a little different. You don't get the sense that this guy is some wash-up multi-generation golden company guy that has no other choices. Like, I feel like this dude could definitely go work somewhere else if he wanted to. So he's really interesting. Let me set out some details about him and what he represents and then turn it over to y'all. First of all, this quote. He has so much in common with Varus. It's wild. Now, I do not, let me caveat, I do not think they're the same person. Occasionally that theory pops up. That's pretty much impossible because, well, there's a lot of reasons. I don't really want to get into why. It just, it's, it's pretty much impossible. <laughs> Here we go. His eyes were a pale lilac, his hair a waterfall of white and gold. All the same, something about him made her skin crawl. Was this what Viserys looked like? 
she found herself wondering. If so, perhaps it is a good thing he is dead. And, well, yeah, because she was going to be betrothed to Viserys, and she's kind of like looking at like, is this the guy? Is this what the dude I was going to marry? Is this what he looked like? Whoa. But look at that line and compare it to this line from a, way back in A Game of Thrones. This, is, this comes from Grandmaster Pycelle. The Lord Varys was born a slave in lease. Did you know? Put not your trust in spiders, my lord. That was scarcely anything Ned needed to be told. There was something about Varys that made his flesh crawl. So we have the flesh crawl thing line but for both of these characters who have lots of other things in common, like the association with Aegon, for one thing, association with Viserys. But another major one is this lilac aspect. The first time we meet Varys, the lilac is all over the place. Like the ass- and that's a big tie to Viserys because Viserys' eyes are lilac. And it's presented that way very early in the text in the Game of Thrones. Now here we are again, five books later, lilac again, Varus vibes all over again. And man, that's a lot to deal with because you know they have to know each other or at least be in contact somehow. They're on the same team. They're fr- both from lease. I mean, I don't know exactly what to make of this connection, but it's got to be there this some way. You know, there's got to be something going on here. Nina writes, in terms of the debate that she, he has, Lysono has with Ariane, that He's like downplaying the real dragons. He's like, ah, you know, real dragons, whatever, whatever. But he's, he's almost like trying to act like they're not even real. Like maybe they don't even exist, but we know he knows they're real. And Ariane's not buying it. He's like, eh, what are you really saying here? And so she presses him continuously until he kind of has to admit, okay, Daenerys is still in Slaver's Bay. She just, she's there. Like she's just not coming. And that throws Ariane for a bit of a loop because she's like, well, what about my brother? It's not really, doesn't come up. Specifically, her, his name doesn't come up, so she's kind of left to wonder, well, what does that mean for him? She doesn't consider the possibility that he's dead. Or at least not, it's not written that way. And this is really important because what the way Lysono plays it off, he's like, eh, I'd rather have, you know, yeah, dragons are better than elephants, but I'd rather have an elephant here than a dragon in Slaver's Bay. I'd rather have what I can touch rather than something that's just a promise. And that, Nina writes, is very much what we might be dealing with in terms of how Aegon will view Arian. He's like, well, should I wait and try to marry Daenerys, who's thousands of leagues away, maybe never coming, maybe won't even marry me, or this beautiful woman, this beautiful, seductive woman who's offering me Dorne right now, who I can literally touch and see. And that is a powerful indicator of the way things will go. And I tend to agree that, yeah, it's going to be hard for young, you know, whatever teenage year he is to resist Ariane in terms of uh, when there's, which he's right there in front of him, (laughs) when Daenerys is way the hell over there, uh, especially after all the things Tyrion imparted to him too. I've got a lot of of stuff here about the negotiation and the whole Ariane-Aegon thing. It diverges mostly away from Lysono, but we can come back to him. Is that all right? Yeah, fire away, man. Whatever you want to say. All right. So, yeah, I, I think it's it, it's important to remember that I don't know whether Aegon's going to be able to hold on to this, but part of Tyrion's message was don't go to Daenerys hat in hand. Yeah. Be desirable, and you'll be desired by her. If you want to really partner with her, make her want to partner with you. And, you know, Doran sends a jar of mud to Danny. She looks <laughs> at it, admits it's fine for mud, and tosses it away. Don't be mud, right? Like if, if he can keep that part of his message in, in his head instead of letting all the victories go to his head, 
maybe he can resist Ariane. That said, I kind of doubt it. Like, <laughs> like everyone else thinks it's, you know, as, as Bloodrider Marcus said on our podcast a couple months ago, you know, I imagine myself with a beautiful woman as a teenager and I would have lasted only a, few, a couple minutes before she had me wrapped right around her finger. Right, it's hard to just so, imagine it going another way, right? <laughs> it, it really is. Ariane is also kind of just as likely to let it go to her head. She's, she's never been matched up with anyone that fit her. She's finally got this... I mean, he's a little young for her. That's true. But she's finally got this successful guy with a lot of potential. And he's maybe turns out to be charismatic. We've seen hints of that. Supposedly, he's, he's handsome. Very, so, yeah. very pretty. I'm not sure if he's her type, really. But he's very pretty. Maybe she gets into her head that they don't need Danny. But it's important for her to keep her head because... As Buck said last, sorry, I call Sir Buck Buck. I don't know if he even likes it. I should ask him something. <laughs> anyway, as he said last week, he, Danny's going to come in and change this game at some point. And they all have to be ready for that. Neither John nor Doran want to commit to a marriage of Aegon and Arianne at this point. Not without an answer to the questions that Doran sent Arianne out to get, right? Did Q succeed? Does Danny have dragons? Is she, are, is she actually here or coming? And all of these things lead to what I call the footloose tractor standoff. <laughs> and that is because the Dornish and Connington, Varys, that whole group, both have a prize on their hands. They have a young, marriageable person, and in Dorn's case, a bunch of available forces that are valuable. And both of them see, obviously, the match that could be made with Ariane and, and Aegon, but neither of them want it to happen immediately. They both need to wait and get the answers to those questions. For Dorne, they can't risk allying with Aegon while the news of Quentin is still pending. They can't risk angering Danny by backing a rival claimant that might get Dorne burned to a crisp. They've lived that life. They don't want it. For John, he needs to wait for Danny also. He will do everything he can to keep Aegon away, like at least two rooms away <laughs> from Arianne, <laughs> because he knows that, yeah, she could wrap him right around, right around her finger. It's literally a game of tractor chicken. And even if one of them kind of wants off, they kind of can't get off. They need each other, but they don't want to commit to each other until they have this Danny situation kind of resolved. Well said. Yeah. Lesson all my favorite femme. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I think Lesono is kind of there to be kind of like um, what you call it. It's like that little person on that like the Jiminy Cricket. Oh, yeah. That's like throwing like little thing, you know, putting things inside of the subconscious for, for Ariane to think about. Because I'm sure he's probably read Ariane and probably knows, probably can tell who she is or, or what she's about, right? Yeah. And so all he has to do is sow seeds, right? In order for her to overthink. Because that's what she's doing. A lot of her internal thoughts are overthinking everything because she's thinking about, well, what about this? And what this? And what about that? And this? And, you know, what will my father think about this? And how will this affect this? And then what about my brother? Like she has all of these conflicting thoughts that are going on in her head. And Lysano, I think people from LIS are very good, like um, covert operatives. Like, they're very good at like reading people and also pulling information and not giving any information. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Because Ariane is very, Ariane is very astute in being able to see that 
for everything that Lysano says, he doesn't really give her any information at all. And she knows she won't be able to get any information from him unless he wants to give it to her. Yeah. But at the same time, a lot of what he's saying is affecting her to some point because it's making her think. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's giving pause and it's giving her um, food for thought, if you will. So as far as Ariane and um, Aegon go, I agree that it might have to be a waiting game because Daenerys is a wild card because she has dragons, right? Aegon might have the Golden Company and he may win a few houses over to his side, but Daenerys has dragons. I don't think anything is going to trump a dragon at this point and everybody's trying to play the waiting game to see what is Daenerys going to do because at this point, nobody knows what she's doing where she is, if she's coming to Westeros, or when she's coming to Westeros. Aegon is kind of like taking a lot of what Tyrion said to heart in that he's, you know, trying to make himself to be the better prize, yeah. right? He's trying to make sure that he is more, he's, he's, he's worth more to, to Daenerys by the time she does see him. At the same time, he does have Arion over here who's just as pretty, who's just as drop-dead gorgeous, and who also comes with a might of her own, which he can have right now. Daenerys, we don't know when she's going to come around. And if he's trying to get the Iron Throne, and he's trying to secure the Iron Throne, does he play this waiting game, not knowing when Daenerys will show up? Or does he do that and secure it? Because he can just say, you know what? I'll be just like my forefather, Aegon, and I'll have two wives. Yeah. I'll just have Arian <laughs> and then I'll just get Daenerys when she comes around. He might get that right? in his head that he can do that. Be like, no, you know? we're not going to do it. No, don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the prize. Yeah. I'm the prize. Right. At the end yeah. of the day, I'm the prize. I think he might be underestimating how much of a prize he might be to Daenerys more so than he is to Ariane, right? Yeah. Because Daenerys, she can say, you know, well, I have dragons and I want the throne. You, if you take the throne, you're actually usurping me. So that might not go so she well. might say, well, I trump you because of these dragons. I can either burn you now or you can just step to the side. And that, I don't know. That causes all sorts of problems too, right? Because then she's a kinslayer if she kills him. And it's like that Westeros, you really don't like that. Uh, another idea that occurs to me here is what if... Westeros hears the rumor that Danny is dead. Like, she flew off on her dragon. Mm-hmm. A lot of people in Marine think she's dead. We know it's not true, but that doesn't matter. If the rumors come to Westeros that Danny's dead, that, then all bets are up. Like, okay, there's no reason to wait. So she's gone. Like, right. there's not, there's not, maybe she won't even come, even if she was alive. But if she's dead... Then he would have a good excuse, too, to what? tell her. Yeah. Like, we thought you were dead. Yeah, like, I thought you were dead. Yeah, and that might even work. Cause, and that's funny, because that would be another parallel. People hearing that Stannis is dead is already a thing. <laughs> like Stannis even says it out loud. You may even hear that I'm dead. Don't worry. Don't listen to it. Just keep going, you know? And so that's a, that's a nice little thematic tie-in or plot tie-in, plot parallel. I'm not big on the long-range blood lineage. Like, you take it far out enough and everybody's got everybody's blood, Yeah, right? yeah, I definitely. Mean, how, much, how much do you need to be, to be a Targaryen? Well, one drop, maybe. Yep. How much do you need to feel Targaryen? I don't know. Some more? I don't know. How much to get the Targaryen magic? Seems to vary depending on, <laughs> yeah. I mean, so so what matters really to me is is that Varys, maybe Lysono too, that they feel connected enough to the Targaryen or Blackfire lineage 
to dedicate their lives to doing something about it. That these people feel that way and that other people believe it enough that they can take action and make something happen. But yeah, I mean, there, there, there are possibilities out there for reasonably direct lineage through Sarah or Arion. Yeah. What about Varus and Lysona? What will they think about the potential or actuality of Ariane or Elia getting influence over their chosen claimant? And that's, we don't need to answer that now. I just want to throw that out there for people to consider. It's like, hmm, yeah. Because <laughs> they're maybe more already thinking of that. Lysono may already be like, well, she's good looking. I wonder what our teenage king is going to think of him. So he may already be thinking of this, but we don't know. We'll have to wait and see. All right, let's talk about the the ravens that are being sent to Doran. Get a sense of what he knows. Raven 1 was from Weeping Town. So he gets all the information from Ariane 1, that the Tollins, what they're thinking, and maybe even those dragon dreams. I'm not sure if she reported that. More importantly, men joining Connington, like the boys just voluntarily joining. Also those slave raids, which we'll talk about in a minute. The Golden Company being in control of the Stormlands. That's a big deal. I hope she's not reporting all the rumors. Doran asked her to report only what she knows is true. Some of those things are rumors. I guess she could just say, these are rumors. I don't know them. But if it's true about the men joining up, it doesn't imply that there's some interest. Like we said, the area is unstable. People aren't huge fans of the Lannisters. So this is one thing that the Golden Company has been counting on, that people would flock to them. And I think it's something that Doran will take into account when he's considering whether or not they should act or not, right? Mm -hmm. He's got getting support from elsewhere. So we're not alone. It's not just us. Yeah. Okay. And then as a good example of that, we have this line, Feathers heard men muttering that the griffin had put Red Ronnet's brother to death and raped his maiden sister. Ronnet himself was said to be rushing south to avenge his brother's death and his sister's dishonor. Well, we know that's not true. We know he kept them hostage and didn't touch them at all. He, and, and Connington wouldn't, is not interested in women at all. So that's just a ridiculous rumor from our perspective. The second line is somewhat true that Ronnington, Ronnet, Ronnington? <laughs> Ronnet is heading south to avenge his brother's death and his sister's dishonor. Well, the brother's death and sister's dishonor part isn't true, but he is rushing south uh, or wants to with Mace Tyrell to take the castle back. Most likely he's just doomed. But uh, so that's a, that's a bit of a problem for him, but I'm not sure we're a big fan of him. So uh, Raven 2 came from Mistwood. Golden Company has Mistwood, so Doran's going to know that. I wonder if she mentions the cave to Doran. I don't know if that would be relevant to him, but I'm still curious. And they learn this one that Connington's on the march. I think there has to be a deciphering of what's true, what's not true, yeah. or reading in between the lines of all of the information that you're getting and trying to weed out what's pertinent in order for him to make a decision because, of course, of how extra cautious that Doran is. I find that whenever we're getting information from a lot of these ends in the story, sometimes the truths have, are exaggerated because people want the story to be a little bit more interesting. Mm. And so you do have to try to pull out what is true in the story, depending on who's telling. Yeah, he kind of, she, he kind of has to suss that out, but he also has to realize, well, has Ariane already filtered some of this? And yeah, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's kind of tricky. We don't know what exactly is in the messages. Now, Scott, Raven 3 is on the road to Griffin's Roost. She sends two messages on the road to Griffin's Roost. One after finding out that they're going for Storm's End. And this, the fourth one is after she speaks with Lyonson Omar, but before getting to Griffin's Roost. So after Raven 3 is when this is the, the news are going for Storm's End. And uh, she's still, there's still nothing about dragons or Danny, though, is there? And that's, that's really interesting. Yeah, I wonder if it's just, it's just kind of is starting to add up. I mean, she spoke to Chain a lot, divulged his whole life story. Presumably, she could have slipped in a few unassuming questions about 
hey, have you ever seen a dragon? Yeah. You know, or like something that would have given her a clue that Danny is not there. I think some of the questions are starting to be answered for her, even if they aren't known. Um, and so I wonder if she's starting to send hints in these letters about that information. That I'm not hearing anything about Quentin. Right. I, I don't think it's good. Yeah. So yeah, that's a big deal, right? That, that's, that's kind of ironic. So Doran's going to know that they have taken Storm, or they don't know that he's taken Storm's End. She'll probably send a raven from Storm's End, and then he'll be like, whoa, you're at Storm's End? <laughs> you know? So they still don't know. If they let her. Yeah, yeah, if they mattered, right? So this is really interesting to me because... Well, if they let her, oh, they might not oh, let yeah, her right, send anything. Sorry, I misunderstood you. Yes, yeah. they might not, but I think they do want that. If they lose the battle, they may not let her, but if they win the battle, which we expect, they will want to spread that news far and wide because that's kind of the point of making her watch. So Doran will be like, oh, they're winning. That doesn't mean it'll be enough winning. He'll still be concerned, like you said, about Danny. Because we still haven't heard. Like, if Lysono could lie about Danny being, could spread the rumor that Danny is dead, if he could push that rumor that we already know exists, he would. Because he's trying to downplay her value and usefulness now that she's decided not to come or marry their guy. But if he knew Quentin was dead, he might have said that too. He might have said, like, yeah, you don't want, if your brother's dead and Danny may have had something to do with that, he could use that against her. But given that he didn't, he probably doesn't know. So I think it's really ironic that she's trying to provide her father with as much accurate information as possible, yet behind the scenes, over hanging over all of this, is her very wrong idea of what her brother is doing and just the fact that he's alive. <laughs> so <laughs> we, let's take a minute to think about this King Quentin mindset. Manara, we'll start with you. What do you think, just in general, your thoughts on how this is driving her and where it might lead, if you have any ideas on that, because obviously it's not going to go where she thinks. <laughs> <laughs> I think it obviously bothers her to some extent that her brother might be king and it's that she feels that she might have to be subservient to him because she thinks about, um, do I have to kneel before him? You know what I mean? Yeah. Because she doesn't really think, she doesn't really think that highly of him. Mm -mm. Having to, you know, be subservient to him doesn't sit well with her. So she has these, you know, she's always having these thoughts about, well, he is not really much of anything. She, she describes him as dull. She starts to be very superficial. And in that instance, she kind of reminds me a lot of Cersei, mm. right? Because Cersei, when she's thinking about people, she thinks about their outward appearance to decide whether or not they're important or that if they are somebody. And in that instance, Ariane is doing the same thing to her brother. Like she's thinking about his outward appearance and kind of like his personality to kind of determine what his value and his worth is. And so the idea of him being King Quentin doesn't sit that well with her to the point where she thinks about, do I have to kneel before him if he's king? So. Yeah, she really hates the idea. She just, it's, there's definitely some pride, some ego. You're right. What do you think, Scott? Yeah, I, I think you said it really well, Monero. I, I would just add one thing. I mean, she has eight years of angst directed at mm -hmm. her father and also at her brother that just doesn't go away. Mm -hmm. It's just not easy to, to just set those emotions right. aside. She's been thinking about him in a certain way for so long, but like, it just, she just can't make it go away overnight. And yeah. So, yeah, I think she, it, just the whole idea makes makes her uncomfortable. It was transposed from, he's going to steal my seat, to, oh, he's going to be... Yeah, either way, she just doesn't want him to be above her in rank. Yeah. Know, one way or the other. Right. Well, she doesn't... Yeah. Uh, she needn't worry. <laughs> oh, well. She's worrying. 
I wonder how she'll feel when she finds out that he died. I know. I wonder if there'll be some, if she'll carry a small amount of guilt for thinking the way that she did for so long. And then now he's dead and then she never had a opportunity to quote unquote, maybe mend whatever relationship they may have had. And that her misguided angst against him because of what she thought her father was doing, which turned out to be not, not what she thought it was. Yeah. And what a mess if she finds out and has to be the one to tell him. She has to send a raven mm-hmm. that's like, oh, by the way, Quentin's dead. Or if he finds out first and doesn't have a good way to tell her. <laughs> like, ah, uh, I don't know how we would possibly see that because there isn't currently a POV with Doran. But still, like, right. the, the order of it, this is part of why this is such a conundrum because it's like, that information is going to reach Westeros at some point. And whoever hears it first... It's it's a big deal. A good example of a small line with a thousand implications, potentially a thousand implications, um, which really fits well with this idea of these infinite caves that they stumble on, which is every plot line in A Song of Ice and Fire you can do so much with. Here, in the Broken Shield, Damon Sand was told that the Great Septry on the Hulf of Men had been burned and looted by raiders from the sea, and a hundred young novices from the Mother House on Maiden Isle carried off into slavery. This is a tragic side effect of the huge disruption Daenerys has caused to the slave trade. She's smashed the source of a lot of slavery, Slaver's Bay, but not nearly all of it, of course, uh, because it's rampant. But this is a global economy we're dealing with, and when there are fewer slaves to be bought, the demand rises, and so does the price. So there's more people out there looking to find slaves. Nina points out there's a bit of a parallel here to to the slave catchers going beyond the wall to catch wildlings and, and all that. We even see Lysine ships do that to, to bring it back to Lys yet again. What, but we don't really have this idea. It's not common for slavers to come to Westeros, uh, but it's apparently popping up more and more because Westeros is unstable and it doesn't have its, it can't defend itself. And evil people grabbing slaves where they can, this is a, you know, if you're an evil person, this is a, golden opportunity. You've got a religious place of peace. Now, what that suggests, it's not just a typical Viking thing that happens. It's not like Nina suggests, Batarian's Iron Fleet is missing a lot of ships, right? It showed up over there. Maybe some of those ships just said, screw it. I'm not going all the way over there. Let's go raiding on the east side of Westeros. These could be rogue ironborn. They could, it could be Orane Waters. He's now the pirate king at the Stepstone, probably or something like that. So there's a lot of possibilities of who it could be. But who it could be maybe isn't as important as what it suggests for the future. To me, this is cutting into Sandor's arc. We were worried about this at the time. When The Quiet Isle was front and center for us in Battle of we talked about how on the show, Sandor's chilling out, building walls, digging ditches, just being a regular guy, hermit of sorts, being useful, staying away from the world. But the world comes to him. This is a, a theme we've talked about throughout this episode and in other places, the war comes to you. You can't hide from the war, even if you're in a hermit spot like that. So to me, this is perhaps a setup for Sandor reentering the story, sort of like he did in the show. Someone comes to attack the Quiet Isle. He's no longer got a safe spot. Maybe everyone around him is killed or a lot of them. And it maybe is the Iron Man. Maybe Euron's Ironborn. After they beat the Redwine fleet, all of a sudden they're going up and down both coasts, doing all sorts of nasty stuff. I totally thought of John Wick. You know, he got out, went to go live a happy life. You know what I mean? His wife passed away, got a little dog. He's just trying to just be a normal guy. And then the life just 
pulls him back in, just like Michael Cohen. The dog is Sandor. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so sometimes you have some unfinished business and it, it eventually comes knocking. Yeah. So that might very well be whatever piece he may have been enjoying for the time being, eventually war will eventually come and touch where he is. Yep. It's inevitable. In Westeros, war finds you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, with this instability that we're seeing, adding the Golden Company and Daenerys to the mix is only going to make it worse for, for people to take advantage. My guess is it's Arian Waters. Uh, I actually misread this quote the first time. I thought they were saying the Golden Company was taking slaves, oh. um, which I thought was really bad. Yeah. You know, I don't think they're doing great, but at least they're probably not taking slaves. Probably not. But uh, my bet is Arian Waters. He's, he's, uh, you know, he's, he's a bastard that seizes on opportunity. We've already seen him do it once by stealing the fleet. Probably heard the news, knows that there's a market, and he's going after it. And he's... Um, Thank you, Cersei, for the ship. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Cersei. Yeah. Appreciate that. Uh, yep. Let's expand on our Catelyn-Arianne parallel. From Catalane to Cat Arianne, we'll call this one. We've had fun with the naming conventions of the Stark girls and how much they match their mother's name, right? Arya is Cat of the Canals. Sansa is Elaine. Cat plus Elaine is Catalane. Catalan. Now we have Arianne, Cat Arianne. Both first born into a great house, both very attractive, according to pretty much everyone. Damon Sand isn't much like Peter Baelish, but Cat had a dalliance with Littlefinger that led to him asking hopelessly for her hand in marriage. The answer was clearly no. Likewise, Arianne had a thing with Damon Sand. They really did sleep together while Littlefinger slept with Lysa and has this false memory thing, but whatever, it's still a parallel. And Damon did ask for Arianne's hand also, but was refused. He didn't fight a duel for her, and if he had, he probably would have done better than Littlefinger, but still, he's no longer pining for Arianne. We see him reject her, so he's, that has very much diverged and of course, they're not very similar, <laughs> as I said. Both, top, both of their dads, uh, Doran and uh, Hoster, backed a teenage king twice. Robert and Rob for Hoster. Viserys and Aegon. Well, I guess he hasn't technically backed Aegon yet, but he's pretty much doing that. We'll, we'll cheat a little to call it that. Cat and Arianne were both betrothed to someone and had that broken. Arianne, several someones, but still. Both witnessed a child almost get murdered right in front of him. Bran was almost killed in front of Catelyn, and Marcella was almost killed in front of Arianne. Cat has red hair and a blackfish uncle. Arianne has black hair and a red viper uncle. Oh, yeah. Both were sent as envoys to Storm's End and not allowed to leave. Instead, made to watch a battle as a demonstration. Remember, Cat says, If you are set on battle, my purpose here is done. I ask your leave to return to Riverrun. Renly says, You do not have it. You shall see what befalls rebels with your own eyes so your son can hear it from your own lips. And in this chapter, Damon Sand wonders why the Golden Company doesn't ally with Stannis instead of attacking him. And back in Clash, when Catelyn suggests a similar thing, she finds out Stannis isn't going to ally with anyone calling himself king. No way. No how. No other kings in Westeros, <laughs> says Stannis, and he has not backed down from that. So lots of parallels, lots of history repeating itself, but not in the same way, just in familiar ways. Actually, those are those are really pretty, pretty good. I don't know how good of a relationship that Cat and Littlefinger had, but <laughs> yeah. there, there is, <laughs> there is still a spark between Damon and Arianne for sure, and you can see that more so. It, it plays out more in the first Arianne uh, Windsor Winter chapter. Yeah, you can see, you know, the way the way that she still looks at him. 
and stuff. Um, the way she catches glimpse of him. And when she kind of like made a suggestion about him staying with her and he made that kind of lewd comment to her, you can kind of see that there's still a bit of a spark between the both of them as with, as compared to with Kat and um, Littlefinger, there was nothing. He has a one-way spark there. Well, he still held a thing <laughs> yeah. for her, but she was not really, she had friends zoned him a long time ago yeah. or brothers zoned him or whatever you want to call it. <laughs> Some zone that isn't hers. Yeah, not, not the cat zone, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, da- dalliance, the, the word you used there to describe it, was uh, the furthest thing I've seen toward a purported actual occurrence of a relationship between those two. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, yeah, what do you think, Scott, about this? Damon is an interesting guy for sure. I, I think there's, there's still definitely feelings there. It might be feelings of love but there's also feelings of betrayal and pride but sure, if, right? if yeah. he weren't if he were over it and like completely moved on he wouldn't have responded meanly he would have responded respectfully like that's not you know that's not where we are we're not there anymore yeah instead of instead of making you know a, a rude comment about it so I, I feel like there's still something there so that's a, i guess a difference between the cat thing like when i said yeah I really love the comparison. I see. I see you do these comparisons on Twitter. <laughs> I do love comparing these two characters. <laughs> yeah, I, I love it when you do them. So it was nice to read through this. I've got two for you, Aziz. Yeah, both are to uh, take a parenting role. Oh yeah, and uh, both see a lot of have their chapters have some of the best descriptors of uh, of landscapes and. Oh yeah, we mentioned that, but I didn't mention you know, it in this context. You mentioned You're right, it already, yeah. so yeah. And of course, there's the whole. So does that mean that Ariane is going to die a really horrible? Oh god, death? that's what a lot <laughs> of people are saying. Sort of. It might be. <laughs> it might mean. Yeah. That, you know. <laughs> but like, like her and her entire party will be wiped out in some way. Well, here's the thought. A lot of people do think that Aziz will go into it. I well, suppose. here's the thought. Like, yeah, her whole party could get wiped out, but here's a different idea. Like, we one idea is, is straightforward that they just get baked by dragon fire slash wildfire uh, along with Aegon. But if you really want to get deep into this parallel, bring up what I brought up before with Lady Stoneheart because John Connington's in the vicinity, right? He's slowly turning to stone. What if he's, what if that's how she goes is she catches grayscale? Like that's still this weird supernatural thing hanging over this whole plot that we touched on a little bit last time. We haven't hardly talked about it all this time because it's just such an unknown. Who is he going to give that to? Like it's not going to just stay on him, right? It's got to spread, but to who? And she, she could be one of them. I don't know. Man, I really don't know what to do with that grayscale plot. <laughs> so, like, yeah, that's there, isn't it? Like, where is that going? <laughs> so curious. Because because it really could be nothing. It, could it be. really could just be to speed up the clock for John Connington and give us a way to relate to his urgency. Yeah. But then you have. But it also could be a huge event that adds another big environmental variable to the whole thing. Because Val, it could be. I could see George doing both. Because yeah, you guys even at the wall, Val's like, no, Marcella's unclean. You gotta kill her. Like, whoa, Val turns into a child. Shireen. (laughs) Advocates child execution. Shireen. What's that? You said Marcella. Oh, I said Marcella. Yeah, Shireen. Shireen. My bad, my bad. Yeah. We all knew. Okay, so this is all leading to this battle. This is our final main topic here today. A lot of people have, I think, aptly compared this to the real-life Battle of Agincourt, where you had French knights trying to charge at English longbowmen, which was a new weapon at the time. They didn't realize how powerful longbows were. They didn't know that these bows could pierce armor plate, which they were used to bows that couldn't do that, so they weren't very afraid of bows in their heavy armor. To mess, to 
add to this problem is, so you have arrows that work a lot better than they were expecting. Then you also have mud, lots of mud. And so the horses can't get going. The knights in their heavy armor are slipping and falling. Meanwhile, more arrows are falling on them and, and other issues. So that's a problem. And of course, the elephants, that's nothing to do with Agincourt. That's just going to be cool. Worse though, in the Battle of Agincourt, these were peasants that were trained. These are actual like Black Balak's archers who are like incredibly well-trained and, and experienced nonetheless, and also like stolid in the field. They're not as likely to get scared or something like that. They're highly disciplined. So I'm not a historical military expert for sure. It's, it's, not, a, it's not really a field I'm in, but I do know some Shakespeare a little bit. And Henry V is the play that has the Battle of Asian Corps in it. And specifically beforehand, one of the most famous Shakespeare speeches is uh, from Henry V. Uh, the Chris, Crispin's Day speech. A beautiful speech. Um, lots of people have done it really well. But uh, I would love to see, to, to, pr- to bring this back to A Song of Ice and Fire, which is why we're here, everyone. Mm-hmm. I would love to see Aegon get a moment. It could be John Con too, but I'd love for it to be Aegon to really establish himself as a presence. Everyone writes him off, and that's fine. I get why. There are lots of thematic reasons. But it would be great to see him earn this place of leadership to really tr- try to make him a more legitimate threat in the realm mm. through this impassioned speech that really just brings people together. Well, that'd be cool. Um, yeah. Much like they do in Christmas Day speech, the Battle of Asian Corps, as you know, is they were severely outnumbered. Yeah. Mm. And he just tells them to pull together and Aegon could do something similar. You, uh, if anyone's interested in the Battle of Asian Corps, of course, there's lots of reading about it. Lots of people in the fandom have written about this potential comparisons, but you can watch uh, it portrayed in, the mo- in a recent movie called The King, which is on Netflix. And it is notable because it has the actor who played Tommen in it, uh, as well as a few other character- actors from Game of Thrones. One thing I love to point out about that movie is that Henry is played, the King of England, is played by Timothy Chalamet, who is French. And the Dauphin, meaning the Prince of France, is played by Robert Pattinson, who is English. So <laughs> the, Love it. the French actor is playing the British king, and the English actor is playing the French prince. So that's pretty cool. And it's a good film. Do you say the French Prince of Bel-Air, maybe? The French Prince of Bel-Air. Hey, Robert Pattinson's pretty, uh, pretty good looking. He could pull that off. <laughs> so apparently, Minaro, you've seen that movie. Yeah, it's pretty good, huh? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I watched it for all the trolling that Pat, Robert Pattinson did. It, yeah. was, it was actually epic he's, for me. He's very to, funny. To yeah. watch that. Yeah, he's, he does this um, over-the-top accent, but it's, it's, it works really well, yeah. <laughs> he's so <laughs> snooty. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so this, this uh, mud battle here is really interesting, too, because it's a parallel, and it's a beautiful parallel, because Stannis' castle, at least it's currently Stannis' castle, is under threat through trickery, and using nature as an advantage, mud, uh, while he is doing the same in the North. He's using nature to his advantage, probably. At least it seems that way with the Ice Lake trick, which we won't debate. We'll just assume that's the case for purposes of this comparison. And uh, that may also be Storm's End versus Winterfell. The the parallel may exist there as well. Mm -hmm. uh, My favorite theory for how Winterfell is going to get taken is Stannis is going to win the battle force Arnolf Karstark to show up at Winterfell saying, hey, look, we won. Here's Stannis' sword. And he's going to be conned into doing this because Stannis has his kids as hostages to force him to do this. We know that very clearly. So, And he can easily steal Frey uniforms because they won't be all cut open and sliced and bloody. They'll be frozen. So they can fish them back out. And really, they've got a good opportunity to make this look 
sneaky. That might be what happens here at Storm's End. After all, John Connington says they're going to take the castle through, quote, guile. And it could be the same sort of thing like, hey, we're the Golden Company. Stan has hired us, <laughs> which, which he just said he wanted Justin Massey to do. That would be kind of ironic if they pretended to be, the, if they pretended to be on his side and use that to get access or some other trick to let the garrison of Storm's End think that they're on their side. Either way, yeah, big battle coming. Can I say, Aziz? Yeah. We all have the Battle of Ice, the Battle of Blood, the Battle of Fire. Just the Battle of Mud. Yeah, Battle of Blood, Battle of Mud. <laughs> We've yeah. even got, you know, Young oh, yeah. John Mud, all the muds. John, oh, yeah. And uh, Scott, you noticed, <laughs> you noticed another little parallel here. It's uh, There was a battle in, during the conquest called The Last Storm. And that might uh, be a bellwether, pun intended, for what uh, might happen here. Yeah, it's kind of the reverse, actually. I mean, what you have is, I mean, the reverse being that uh, the people we're following or the instigators, I guess, are defending uh, the the southern part by Storm's End versus the attackers might be in the place where Oris Baratheon was. So Oris Baratheon attacking from the north had advanced scouting through Meraxes and knew exactly where they were and where they were coming from, the opponents. So he stood on the hills, the high ground, and, and took his advantage there. The weather kind of worked interestingly for him and against him. The mud helped because as the as his opponents tried to charge up the hill, they were they had a wreck of it that the horses couldn't really do it. So Argolac couldn't really get to them very well. But there were there were also extreme fierce winds that blinded his men so that they couldn't see very well. So they were susceptible to the, the spearmen coming up more slowly. And it also made his archers ineffective, which which I wonder how how John and Aegon will get around that yeah. with being so dependent on the archery. We have a member of our Kalisar that weighs in sometimes about archery and the bowstrings getting wet. And there are solutions to that now with wax and things like that that you can help. But I don't know that they know those tricks or maybe that's something that George will whip out as new technology, yeah. right? Uh, and, and that's something that will help them uh, win that battle or something. But yeah, so the, the weather was definitely going to be a, a thing. How much John remembers history might also help if he remembers the last storm yeah, and yeah. Can, can draw from it to gain experience. I, we'll see. And you mentioned here that you, you commented on this trick to take Winter, uh, Storm's End, and, and you also mentioned that's how Ramsey takes Winterfell from Theon. That's, uh, yeah. Yeah, the trickery part yeah. to get in, yes. Yeah, Ramsey kind of takes, takes Winterfell in a similar way, yeah. You call it, uh, you compare it to the Trojan horse, which I love that comparison because we've, we've made that comparison to what Victorian is doing. It's the Trojan mm-hmm. fleet full of men uh, pretending to be fishermen or whatever. So just trickery is a big part of a lot of these battles. Euron, too, is probably going to like call up some Krakens or something. I don't know what he's doing, but he's got something planned. So it's going to be something unexpected as far as the, the red wine fleet's concerned. They're not going to see it coming, whatever it is. By making all of his castles amazingly defensible and impossible to penetrate, yeah. George has to use these literary trickery, tricky ways yeah. to get into castles. And we brought up the Friends of the Reach thing, too. That's another possibility of Friends in the Stormlands, people mm. who will turn on Mace Tyrell. And uh, we've already mentioned Randall Tarley, but he's back in King's Landing for the trial. He may not be a part of this battle. Mathis Rowan, however, is already at Storm's End, or at least he was before we hear the storm, the, the castle being taken. So maybe he switched sides, which maybe helped them get the castle. People turning on the Tyrells is another thing that could happen during the battle that might change the outcome or at least assist it. I agree. I think a lot of the taking of the castles is going to happen through trickery and subterfuge. Logistically, it doesn't really make any sense for them to try to like go in and like, you know, all battle or, you know, do a siege because it's going to take too long. Yeah. 
right? And so I think the quickest, most efficient way is through is through trickery and subterfuge. And they have the means to do it, right? Because George has already given us history about how it's been done in the past. So there's plenty of examples of ways that they can do it now. And so most of the battles that we'll probably see will be like short-term battles. And there might not be too many. Most of the casualties that we'll see will be done through whoever the commanders are, are going to use the terrain. Like how we see Stannis is probably, is most definitely going to be using the terrain to his advantage to defeat the phrase and the Bolton forces. I'm also going to assume that John Connaughton knows the terrain. And so he's going to use that to his advantage in order to be, to defeat any of the Lannister forces. Yeah. He's from there, right? He's from the Stormlands. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So he knows the terrain. And so even though the Golden Company are not familiar with the terrain, all they have to do is follow whatever it is that he tells them to do and just, you know, position themselves where he tells them to position themselves and they can just take care of the rest. And they're disciplined, so they should, they probably will follow orders. Um, yeah, so that's, that's a good call. Okay, final prediction for Arianne. I'm going to phrase the question, will Arianne see Dorne again? But you can, you can answer this in a variety of ways, like, well, if she dies or a variety of other things. Scott, start with you. I think she will. Okay. Uh, I think uh, it seems like she'll go see this demonstration, fall head over heels for Aegon, or at least, you know, the station and opportunity he provides. She'll not be able to seal the deal with Aegon and really through John because of the whole Danny situation, that, that whole question of, you know, do we want to marry her? And, and so they won't, they won't move that full way. And so what John will ask for is, I still need your troops. No marriage. I still need your assistance. You saw what we're capable of. Please do it. And she'll say, I kind of need dad for that. Mm. And she'll get an escort back and there'll be a whole thing. Okay, cool. And that's where we'll get to see Dorns. That's my opinion. Right on. Okay. We'll that's cool. I like it. Manara, what's your prediction here? I kind of agree with that. Like she, there has to be something in it for, for her, for her, especially her, because, you know, she's, I think she felt like she's gotten the short end of the stick for a very long time. And so this marriage is that one thing that's going to solidify her position in return for the Jordanish forces. So I agree that it's, it's going to be like it, it, in order for them to have Dorne, they have to agree um, for her to marry Aegon, okay. whatever the cost. Well, I'm going to, I'll be contrary. I think she's going to die in King's Landing, probably with Aegon. Maybe they die separately, but a decent chance they die together. I'll, and I'll leave, also add a thought from Nina here. She, she writes something, this is a, a really good take, I think that a theme of the chapter or some, she says this thought where I, she, she plays a few games in the cave and then she says, I'm tired of these games. Like she's getting bored of it or tired of it. It's partly because the closer she gets to her target, the, her, their destination, the, la- the more it's becoming real. It's moving around pieces on a board is starting to seem a little mundane compared to the reality they're faced with. And it's like, this isn't a game anymore. It's real. Before she was, was treating it sort of like a game. She didn't realize how real it all was when she was doing her coup. You could kind of tell like she didn't really understand the consequences. She didn't really understand what she was doing. She gets that a lot more now. You know, Tyrion, when he was in it, he wasn't playing. And then once he was out, he was. That's a good point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> and then they, then he, and he used Cybest to get them back in, to turn him around. Yeah, because that was that, when Aegon decides to go, it's, uh, it's kind of that Cybest match where he kicks over the board, which he's doing now in a metaphorical sense. Aegon has entered the Game of Thrones kind of out of nowhere. It's from some people's point of view and kicked the board over and 
cause a lot of disarray. So, uh, yeah, general disarray, which could be um, John Connington's military title. Mm, yes. Um, Nina also- specifically said she thinks um, Ariane won't die in Winds of Winter and will die at the beginning of A Dream of Spring. Oh, okay, cool. Just, it, I don't, that doesn't answer what you're wondering, but it is telling. What about you? What do you predict? Do you have a, do you have a guess? <gasps> I, I guess You like Ariane. It's hard to predict her I, I do like her a lot. I do think she'll survive the Winds of Winter, but I do think she won't make it to Dorne, I suppose, when okay. I think about it. I mean... Yeah, I don't think she's going to retreat from Storm's End to Dorne. I think that's when she would go. Like, maybe she goes from Storm's End, and then she ends up going to Dorne, and then she ends up going to King's Landing. But I don't see her going to King's Landing and then to Dorne, necessarily. Yeah. I wonder who's going to rule Dorne at the end. And if she dies, who's going to be left in charge yeah, of Dorne? Yeah, I mean, we have Tristane, but then who knows Tristane's if he survives. <laughs> but there's the Sand Snakes to be legitimized. So presumably it could be little Ilya, could be Loreza, uh, yeah, could, could be, be any of those. Loreza would be interesting because the big theory that I have and Joanna Lannister has is that the unnamed princess of Dorne, her name is Loreza. That's the extent of the theories I have. Yeah. Names. <laughs> So okay. I'm telling you, people leave Dorne, they don't go back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, people, like people go to Dorne and they don't come back in the case of Leona Star. Yeah, it's true. And that's uh, it says bad things about Elias Sand as well. Yeah, Nina writes, the chapter overall has a lot of anti-Dornish historical memories from the Blackfires to Dare on the Young Dragon to the Watchtowers. It's almost like the story itself is trying to warn Arian to turn back that there's nothing good for her farther north. Uh, but of course, she didn't notice those warnings, as we pointed out multiple times throughout this episode. The world building around her is telling a story, but she's not noticing it. We hopefully did a pretty good job of catching it. Okay, we've got a few. Let's see if we have any live questions here to take. Um, they've built up a few here. Let's see what we got. TKOK Podcast Network sends a super chat. Says Mercy Chapter Audio Project was awesome. Kudos to all involved. Yes, please. If you haven't checked that out, definitely do so. It did come out awesome. We're really happy with it, and um, we're excited to put more of those out. Yeah, I mean, I was excited about it, and I thought it was going to be good, but I did not think it was going to be as good as it was, I have to say. The reason I, away. The reason I thought of the echoing Elia and thinking about the die, 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 the reason that came out so much was because of the audio chapter. Because I was thinking about that more. It made me think about mm. like the sound and music and what's happening more, because in this, in this Mercy chapter, like Alex our sound engineer guy, he has this great moment where Arya notices Raph and the sound of music just stops and it's like she's really in her head. And that's just one example of, of the way the mood is really enhanced by the music and sound. And of course, we have really good actors and, and Lady Gwyn is a narrator. So Yeah, we've got Lady Gwyn and Yoke Boy and, yeah. and Mercy and a lot of other voices you guys will recognize. It is just so cool. Dornish Dame says, every time I hear about Cape Wrath, I get concerned for Maria Seaworth and her kiddos. Yeah, that's Davos' wife. Yeah, we, we wonder what's up with them. Um, do you guys have any predictions? Of course, Scott, you being Davos Fingers guy, like, what do you, are you, do you share this worry? No. <laughs> I, so I, sh- I don't share the worry because I've, I've already kind of given up on them. Okay. Uh, <laughs> that's a sad thing to say. I, I, feel like, I feel like Davos is in a rough spot. Stannis is not going to come out on top, I don't think of this thing. And so the result is not going to be good for Mari. I, I wrote them off years ago. We can, we can, <laughs> in my, in my heart, we can maybe hope sad. that castle Seaworth is just important enough for them to bother with. <laughs> that might be, maybe that's our hope. There. I will cling to that. Now you've given me new hope and now I am. <laughs> it's just a bunch of boys and no, no girls there. 
Yeah. <laughs> Will Moss says, I was at this archaeology event here in England, and there was a guy showing how they used to light fires with a flint and things like strands of wool. It was amazingly effective. He said they carried around little bits of material or whatever. Oh, yeah. Okay. And so that was just interesting, the idea that she could, you know, if you were in that situation, you could maybe rip off a piece of your clothes. I don't know. Oh, yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Jonathan Hagee points out something we maybe should have just realized as we were talking about it. When we talked about the, the boys born into these camps, they get raised to be soldiers. They're born off of camp followers. Well, what? where do the camp followers come from? A lot of them are the, the girls that were born into the same situations. And that's pretty yeah. sad to think about. Yeah, like talk about not that's having the options. Inverse, that's the inverse Craster situation. Ugh, yeah, mm. boy, you're right. Yeah, it's terrible, right? Like this is a horrible institution. This, this, this sellsword company is like, even as we're saying they're not quite as bad as, as they seem in some of the ways they're said, they're worse in other ways that aren't spoken of. <laughs> like, like when knights of the Seven Kingdoms denigrate sellswords, they don't talk about this. They're not like, yes, they're, it's a very bad for the children. Like, that, that's not what they talk about. They're like, they're dishonorable. Like, yeah. Max L says, I feel like the setup is for Danny to run over young Griff pretty quick, but get mired down fighting the Martells in Dorne. And that could allow lots of other things to happen in the meantime. He says, that's at least the foreshadowing the backstory encourages. Yes, that Dorne is, you get mired in Dorne. That's a pretty good, good, pretty good take. Is anyone, what, Monaro, do you, uh, do you have anything to say about that? It's kind of an interesting idea. That, I mean, that could be a possibility, but my, but we don't really hear too much about how they would go about, to, like too much about, like we hear that they have troops, right? Yeah. But we don't really know what the troop capabilities are because when was the last time they were actually in true conflict like other than outside of their own terrain right yeah because most of the wars that they fought was within their own terrain they're having to come outside of that right and so um if you're used to fighting in dry heat and on rocks coming to fight in mud and and grass is a different animal right yeah. and so unless unless danny goes to dorn and you know, suffers a Rhaenyra's type deal? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Julie A. says, I would love to ask the panel if they think Arianne going to Storm's End to talk with John Connington is a good idea. I'm torn on that. I mean, it's hard for me to... I think she's going to end up dying because of it, but I'm not sure if you can say it's a direct result of going to Storm's End. So, I don't know. I think she kind of has to, but I don't know if it's... I think it's not going to work out, but I think she's not wrong that she needs to be brave about it and to really find out what's happening. They social distance. They should be. Fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And they need to social distance uh, from John Con. You're totally right. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's absolutely a bad idea. She still has to do it. Okay. I, they, they need, they need to know whether they should act or not. And to know that I feel like they need to get a little bit more information. And so it's not good, but it, it, this is the game. Like you have to play it. And so it's a terrible idea to go, but she still has to. Maybe it's I, not quite no chance, no choice, but it's a uh, little chance, little choice. Yeah. I still wonder if there's not somewhere that they, I mean, she has to get in there. I get your, everyone's point to be clear, but I would, the, the arguments they make to her about being safest in the walls. I feel like there are plenty of places in the area that will not be a target that she could hide out at. Mm. You know, I, I just I can't help but think it when I read their arguments for her. I'm like, I don't know that this is necessarily the safest. Mm. Well, she's yeah, a no, valuable right. hostage. Yeah, yeah, it's true. She'd make a very valuable. Hostage. But I mean, if she's just at, you know, so she's just camping out somewhere that no one would go, then plenty safe, way safer. So Nina noticed that Ironwood is up in the mountains with rivers and greenery, and so that's another thing she may have seen. 
as far as like getting exposed to seeing like lush and and Quentin, I guess would have would have seen that Quentin a lot. Would have seen that, yeah, because so, he, he was fostered there. But as she says, she was like, "It's not a rainforest, obviously." Right. But she also brings up that Ariane may have gone to Grandview, depending on whether Lord Grandison went to Sunspear or she went there. If you guys recall, yeah, um, Lord was, Grandison was an old man that they him, yeah, floated. Right. I think probably he went to Sunspear. Just because I kind of picture, you know, the kind of scenario where they bring men for her to say yeah, no to. That's possible. Yeah. But maybe she was on tour. Like we see Oberyn and Elia mm. go. I it could really be either. Yeah. Shout out to Adam Whitehead, aka Werthead. He is named in this chapter. There is the Sir Adam Whitehead, and that is a reference to Adam Whitehead, longtime member of the fandom. He is the runner of the Atlas of Ice and Fire blog. Uh, the Wirt Zone, it's called. Werthead, Whitehead. Yeah, that's him. He's a great guy. His website is awesome. We're a patron of... We've Atlas been on a panel Fire. with him, even. Oh, we've been on panels with him, yeah, in uh, overseas. Yeah, he's a, he's, a, he's a Brit. So, great guy. Worth checking out his work. He's, he's uh, responsible for a lot of map work you've seen around the fandom that you may not have realized was uh, his effort. So, definitely go check him out. He also does reviews on a lot of other TV shows and, and books. Very prolif- uh, prolific uh, reviewer. That's what he does in the world, too. What's that? That's what the character does in world, too. <laughs> he reviews things. <laughs> Eric Forg asks, what will happen to Ronit's family? So, yeah, because John Connington says, well, nothing's going to happen to Ronit's kid, uh, kids unless Ronit proves an utter fool. Well... Is attacking them proving an utter fool? Because that's what he's trying to do. So uh, John Connington might execute his own kin, which, I mean, he's definitely capable. We talked about how he's willing to go farther because last time he wasn't, he didn't go far enough. So it was pretty dark, but I, I kind of hard to argue against it. Do you guys see that playing out any differently? Minara, do you think Ronit's family is just going to get executed? <laughs> I wasn't really thinking about it that way, but... <laughs> He could very well. I mean, at this point, he really doesn't have anything to lose because he thinks he's dying anyway. Yeah, that's true. He knows it. Yeah. So, <laughs> as long as what? as long as Aegon is on the Iron Throne and he's fulfilled that and he's fulfilled that mission, I don't think he really much cares. Yeah. yeah what does he have to gain stuff? there? Why, why does he need to take the seat from the Coningtons long term? That's true. Well, yeah, yeah, that's true. I wonder, yeah, but he made this promise. He's like, well, I can't have people like flaunting my demands when I'm holding on. Like, I can't just give in. Like, you've got hostages. You've said you're going to kill them. If they do that, you got to follow through. Like, we've, that's a recurring. You can't theme. make no empty yeah. threats. I, yeah. I, I feel like what happens there is going to be more about John than it is about Ronan. Yeah. Like, yeah. You're right. It's, it's more about showing John's changes and de the evolution than it is about anything Ronan's doing. Yep. It needs mentioning because it keeps coming up. How much this is set up for Danny scapegoating lines like this. Quentin would be king or he would not. I pray Daenerys treats him more gently than she did her own brother. Because uh, so first of all, so she's accusing Daenerys in, uh, explicitly there or indirectly of killing Viserys, which we know is not how it went at all. Um, but it's set up for that. Like blaming Daenerys for calling Daenerys a kinslayer. Theon's chapter also mentions Viserys and how he was killed. So Viserys' name is popping up all over in these early sample chapters, which is... It's been a while since Viserys was a, a topic, but uh, it's notable that he has one here. 
Arian thoughts are, are, are an example or a bellwether of how other people will view Daenerys. And we've, we've talked enough about this, but this is another example of it right here. John Hagee says there's Thermopylae vibes from 300 men in the Boneweg with the Sand Snakes. Yeah, that's kind of true, right? There's the, it's, a, it's a mountain pass. And yes, the, the movie 300 is not very historically accurate, but it gives you the gist of what happened. There's 300 mm-hmm. Spartans and about 1,000 allies, mostly thespians. Yes, thespians, as in people from the city of Thespi, not, you know, drama kids or whatever. And uh, that's basically it. There's, they did fight this heroic last stand and um, all died. But Oberyn also brought 300 men with him to King's Landing. So it's kind of like, I don't know if that's the, the standard number. It's also the same number of Raven's Teeth. I don't know. George just likes using 300, maybe because of Thermopylae. So yeah, that might be the reference. But Now here's a funny line. The last line of the entire chapter is, I sail to beard the dragon in its den, which I think is a humorous thing to say about a dragon too young to grow a beard. Um, <laughs> Scott, you have some notes on this? Well, I think, I think it's a, a very weird line to end on yeah, unless right. my research was bad <laughs> it, it bearding the dragon is it's a phrase that basically means you're gonna go you're gonna go challenge someone you're gonna defy them boldly to their face something they want and kind of throw it back at them um it's a it's got a lot of history in our world but um i don't know what if that's the mindset Ariane has that's not a good place yeah. for her to be in I, mean, <laughs> I think she should be going there looking for alliance and you know feeling this out, not for, not for challenging and defiance. Yeah. Monara, what about you? It's, a weird, it's just a weird way to end it. Yeah, it's a peculiar line, for sure. Like, what? Hmm. <laughs> I, I think it, it goes to show how she views herself in comparison to um, Aegon, how she views what his value and worth is as compared to what her value and worth is, right? Because she is, she is everything is viewed in that, um, in that respect. Right. Mm -hmm. And so because she doesn't, let's remember who Aegon is. Aegon is the son of her aunt. Right. And so he is, he is technically family. Yeah. And so she doesn't even know if it's really him. Right. Because based on her conversation with, with Damon Sand, there is still doubt that he is who he says he is. And she needs to confirm that. Mm -hmm. Right. And so she's not giving him, I guess, the level of importance that he should get because we don't really, she doesn't really know if he is who he says he is. And that is part of her mission, right? To confirm that this is truly Elia's son, Aegon Return. Yeah, it's true. We went three and a half hours talking about Aegon and didn't even bring up whether it's really him. <laughs> yeah, we've, that's amazing. That that's like a fandom record. We've we have covered it so much before this, but yeah, it's a, she she thinks he's real. She doesn't have much. Like she, I mean, she doesn't think he's real. She has a different reasons to suspect it than we do, but she's still right to suspect that. And yeah, that's neat. Um, oh, Max L points out Martin also uses the term beard when Doran says, "Oh, Barasand will beard Darkstar in his den." And yeah, um, I grabbed the quote. We also had a similar line from Victorian uh, dating back to he referred to. Dagon Greyjoy doing that. So, yeah, that's pretty cool. That line keeps coming up. It's also uh, kind of an indication that Arianne doesn't see what we see coming, which is the, yeah, the possibility of them falling in love or, or having an attraction. Arianne, that hasn't crossed her mind. She's like, maybe I'll be attracted to him. Like, why would that cross her mind uh, automatically? Good chance I just wanted up. to kind of share the line from Victorian you mentioned. Yeah. I looked it up. He's talking about Lord Dagon, and he says he bearded the lion in his den and tied the dire wolf's tail in knots. 
But even Dagon could not defeat the dragons. Oh, he yeah. Happens to even bring Dagon up the dragons. The dragons. Sounds like a Euron, uh, Euron prediction. <laughs> <laughs> He's trying to not beat him, but join him. But I don't think that'll work either. But maybe it will for a time. Okay, folks, that was a particularly long episode. One of the longest we've done in a while. But hey, this chapter just had a lot to say. We had lots of different takes. Great takes from our guests. Really thank you all for joining us. This was a lot to do, a lot to say. Um, Monaro, where let's remind everyone again where to find you. And if you have anything you want to say about what's coming up next for you, if you, if you know what that is, or um, if you haven't decided what you're doing next, but let us know either way. <laughs> um, again, you can find me on YouTube at Monaro TV. And I do have a Twitter, but um, I'm like a Twitter like ninja. I just show up to like, I don't, I'm not very like interactive on Twitter because um, I'm not really good at interacting on Twitter. So I don't really do it too often. So, but I am on Twitter. I do have do a that. Twitter. And it's Monaro Unlimited. Um, on my, um, I will be coming back to my channel in June where I'll be doing some anime and uh, doing some Disney Plus and Netflix um, shows that I've been uh, talking about. And yes, I have to talk about Expanse. So yeah. um, if you're interested in any of that kind of stuff, um, please feel free to subscribe uh, so that you can be notified whenever I am going to be uploading a video next. Yeah, definitely do that, folks. Yeah, you heard her takes. She had a lot of great takes, and you want to, you're going to want to get more of that. Uh, Scott, please tell us what's next for you all in Davos Fingers and remind everybody where to find you. Of course, I'm, I, I want to ask, is it Davos Fingers or Davos's Fingers? Are you are you so it's, used to people saying Davos fingers that you're okay with it? it but it, it always ha- yeah, has yeah. the apostrophe, so I've always thought it's Davos's yeah, it fingers, Davos but it's fingers. not. Yeah. It doesn't feel natural for me to say that. <laughs> yeah, Davos fingers. Uh, the possessive s is a challenge in the English language. I'd say, uh, blame us for having a terrible name. Uh, <laughs> but a great the origin story of that name is <laughs> yeah, uh, origin story of that is interesting, but. Uh, Yes, Davos's fingers, uh, but everyone says Davos fingers. That's fine, uh, and I've said the name a lot now. Uh, best place to find us is on Twitter. We're very active there at Davos Fingers. Uh, we do have a Patreon, uh, patreoncom Davosfingers. Um, we, we can find our podcast anywhere you listen to podcasts. Pretty much uh, uh, on Podbean is where we're hosted. Um, and I put the link down in the but, description uh, so you can find it that way as well. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Uh, right now we're doing Meet the Kalisar. Uh, we just recorded on Friday and we'll be releasing that episode and we're doing a live uh, thing with our with our patrons to cover Mean Girls, the movie, which we're very ah, excited about. You can nice. sit with us. You <laughs> haven't seen you that, have you? I have. You have, okay. Yeah, I watched it with you. Before we go on a nice summer break. So this is perfect time to uh, promote our podcast as we go on a break. Cool. Right on. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> So yeah, everybody check out Davos Fingers, check out Minaro. And next week, we'll have Mercy, the chapter Mercy with the Learned Hands podcast. That's Maester Mary and Clint. That's going to be great because we also have the audio version to play with in, in terms of our quotes. That'll be great. A little extra boost for that. Um, and of course, we would love for you all to join us for the audio project. You can join our Discord or Facebook group and uh, let us know you're interested or just email your auditions Whatever character you want to audition for, any of the sample chapters that we haven't already done, westroshistory at gmail.com, and we'll let you know. 
Um, I, I mentioned the Blackfire episodes. They came up a lot. You guys know what to do. We have mentioned some of the other episodes here. There's a lot of overlap with topics we've had elsewhere. I can't wait to explore these topics further in the future. So until next time, let me say thanks to our guests. Thanks to Ashea. Thanks to our mods on Facebook. Thanks to uh, all the, everyone who hangs out on Flick and Facebook and, and Slack and Discord. Thanks to Michael Clarfeld, a.k.a. Claridox.de. Thanks to Kevin McLeod for music, as well as Joey Townsend and Jesse Koval for same. Thanks to our Benjineer for the sound quality assistance. Thanks to all our patrons for making all this possible, for allowing us to spend so much time delving deep into the infinite caves of A Song of Ice and Fire, not unlike the caves system we saw in this chapter. And go check out Here Be Dragons over on YouTube. We're cutting into their time. We try not to do that, but this was necessary today. They're covering The Clone Wars Season 4. Oh, cool. Yeah, Clone Wars, good stuff. So check that out, my friends, and you know what to do. We'll see you next time. Valar re-reads.